finding suitable mental health medications can be a challenge. The GeneSight test may help. Did you know that genetics can play an important role in gaining insight on how a person may respond to various medications? Understanding this may help reduce medication trial and error. GeneSight is a genetic test that analyzes variations in DNA. It shows how genes may affect someone's metabolism or response to medications commonly prescribed to treat depression, anxiety, and other mental health conditions. Visit GeneSight.com for more information. This episode of The Sean Ryan Show is brought to you by Vigilance Elite Patreon. Vigilance Elite Patreon is how you support the show. It also has an entire library of tactical training and behind-the-scenes footage of The Sean Ryan Show. Go to VigilanceElite.com, click the Training tab. It'll take you right to Vigilance Elite Training on Patreon. Get a subscription. Support the show. Thank you. Let's get on with it. He proceeds to look at me and one of my other comrades and he's like, hey, uh, go ahead and put the body on the hood. On the hood of what? So you fucking took out number three. Having that natural instinct to react and to do what needs to be done, you can't train for that. You were hand-selected again uh, to come on as a fucking operator. A car bomb was driven into one of our vehicles on the convoy, and we did what we were trained to do. They were taking kids and filling their bicycle tires with explosives and they would have the kids ride their bike towards the convoy and start detonating their fucking bicycles. I got up on the top of the roof and uh, you know started engaging you know targets and you can see the guys are running back and forth. Sure enough they're still coming and uh, you know I just engaged a single round to each guy. They were from all different directions. Um, you know, we cut out murder holes in the walls. You're 19 years old and you just got your first engagement and shot your first man. Your fucking service record is amazing. I've worked with a lot of different operators from all different branches, especially when I was at CIA. If I could go back and operate with somebody um, that I didn't get to before, you would be fucking top of my list, dude. And I don't say that shit to very many people. Welcome back to the Sean Ryan Show. I wanna kick things off and say thank you to all our patrons on Patreon who've been supporting the show behind the scenes. Because of your support, we've been able to upgrade all of our equipment and you'll see the benefits of that as you watch the show also i want to give a big thank you to everyone who took the time to go to itunes hit the subscribe button and leave us a review if you haven't done that yet please go to itunes hit the subscribe button leave us a review even if it's just one word that's what we need to get this show up in the top charts 
If you're watching this on YouTube, and you're going to want to, because there's real gunfight footage of our next guest in combat in Afghanistan. Hit the subscribe button on YouTube, hit the like button, share it with all your friends, leave us a comment, and with that being said, I'm ready to introduce my next guest, number 004. He's a United States Marine with four combat deployments. He spent some time in the infantry on the front lines in Iraq back in the early days. He was hand selected to become a plank owner of MARSOC, which is the special operations unit out of the United States Marine Corps and became a Marine Raider. He shot and killed the number three high value threat in Afghanistan in his time. Guys, if you think you have what it takes to become a Marine Raider, you better fucking think again. At the end of this, there'll be a debrief covering the entire experience. We also interviewed his wife while they were here. Everyone, this is better than entertainment. This is the real thing. Please welcome my very good friend, Mr. Nick Kefalitis. Nick, it's an honor to have you here, man. Welcome to the show. Thanks, man. It's truly an honor to be here, to just be able to sit in this chair, uh, knowing the guys that have sat here before me. It's Some bad motherfuckers have sat in that chair. Yeah, it's a privilege, truly. Well, I'm just super stoked you guys got out here. Um, I know it's a little out of the way, but, uh, you know, the last time we saw each other, was what two or three years ago probably teaching on the fucking gun range and uh then we kind of split and you went to tampa and uh i stayed on the fucking range <laughs> for a while but um but anyways now you're a professional fisherman and uh that's fucking awesome I'm like super stoked. So I got you a present. Oh shit! That uh, might help you take uh, your fishing to the next level. So uh -oh. if you reach over there on the, yeah, there it is. Oh wow! Oh, what's in there? No peeking. Hey, no peeking. No, none. Okay. I'm gonna go ahead and open it. Go ahead. All right. Oh god, dude. Yeah. These will come in handy. Um, I love to snack when I'm out on the boat. Like it's just a like feeding is continuous. So uh, so those are actually great bait for uh, bass. Oh no shit. Yeah, and there's different colors in there, so you, you can use them. Okay, you know, cool, some, cool. Some colors work better for different seasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know the red ones they like, you know, for spawning. <laughs> well, I really but, appreciate it, dude. Uh, I'll try to make sure that these make it till tonight. Right, probably not. <laughs> right on. But uh, getting kind of into into it, I've been really looking forward to this one because I have we haven't had a marine on yet, and uh, so I'm excited about that because my personal opinion is I think the Marine Corps is probably the most effective self-sustaining unit uh or branch of the military um because they're so they're self-sustaining i think you guys are probably the most eager 
to get in there and uh, get to war. You do. You guys are very fucking effective. Um, extremely violent <laughs> and uh, hungry for it. And uh, definitely the biggest libo risks out of uh, any. I'd have to agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where there's Marines, there's definitely fucking trouble. Yeah, I've, I've told people before, you know, if, if you haven't partied with a group of Marines before, you, you really haven't experienced partying. <laughs> it's just a whole nother level, man. Yeah. But, um, and I'm excited because you are actually, you might, you're one of the only guys I've ever met who actually has real ground combat time in a in an unconventional unit when um, you were soft and in a conventional unit when you were a grunt. And uh, I kind of want to go into the differences um, that you saw on both being a grunt and a, uh, a MARSOC operator. So, but anyways... Let's start with uh, your childhood. So, where'd you grow up? I grew up in South Florida, uh, Palm Beach County area. Um, so my mom and my dad were actually both Marines. Uh, I can actually say my mama wore combat boots. Uh, no shit. Yeah, so mom and dad were both Marines. Uh, they were stationed together in Hawaii, and that's where I was born there, in Kanaoi Bay, uh, Hawaii. At a young age, we moved from there shortly after my mom and my dad uh, got out of the Marine Corps. They both did an enlistment and got out. Uh, moved back to Florida, which was home for them. That was my first time as a baby, you know, when they, we moved from where I was born to Florida. And then I grew up there, you know, all through grade school and high school and everything. So South Florida is, is what I would essentially call home. So your parents were both Marines, but you weren't necessarily a military brat. They were out, like, at a very young age. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, but... You know, anybody that's been in the Marine Corps kind of knows that that mentality and that lifestyle, it sticks with you. You don't really, you know, they have that saying, once a Marine, always Marine. And I feel like it kind of holds true because you keep that regimented lifestyle, you know, that discipline. And, and uh, they pass that down to me. I mean, my childhood, man, I remember get like chores in my house consisting of like white glove inspections to make sure I dusted my bathroom correctly and shit Holy like shit. shit that I had no clue was actually going to be relevant during my time in the Marine Corps because you actually get inspection like yeah. you get inspected on, on how you clean things and stuff like that like you guys have the worst inspections yeah yeah whether it's a uniform inspection or field day or you know field days the term that we use to to clean you know it would be like every Thursday would be field day and there's times I can remember, dude, we've had inspections. You know, our company gunny would come through and the inspections would go. We just keep failing till like three o'clock in the morning. And we had to be up for PT at five. And I think there was a kind of a method to the madness, if you will. Like it wasn't just to make us, you know, just to be, you know, mean to us and be like, no, you suck at cleaning. It was to see how we would perform with sleep deprivation, you know, being up all night and then having to perform two hours later you know, on a strenuous, you know, PT exercise or, uh, uh, doing a, a ruck march or a hike or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. What, so what did your parents do in the Marine Corps? So my dad was a combat engineer. My mom was an administrative clerk. Uh, and then my stepfather, he, uh, he's a Vietnam era Marine, uh, Marine scout sniper. Uh, he did multiple tours over Vietnam and, uh, you know, saw some pretty, pretty hairy shit. So no shit. So when did, uh, 
when did your stepdad come into the picture? Yeah, how old was I when my stepdad came into the picture? Uh, I want to say it was like probably 12, 11, 12 years old when he came into the picture. Okay. So I was still fairly young, you know, almost a teenager. Were you close with uh, your biological father? Yeah. Yeah, I've always been. My dad and I have always been close. Are you close with your stepfather? Um, I mean, close in a sense like we could go months without talking and then pick up right where we left off kind of thing. Like we're not like, you know, close as my father, my biological father and I are, but I mean, we get along good. There were some times during my childhood where we didn't get along, um, you know, just for, for, you know, random reasons, but that's just, you know, childhood and parenting, you know, in general, that's how it is. So he was a fucking scout sniper in Vietnam with multiple tours. Yeah. That's he saw uh, some shit. He had some, some kills under his belt and stuff like that. And I think I, I kind of, you know, like a lot of teenagers, you kind of go through that phase where, you know, you don't really want to, you know, follow the rules and that shit. And he was just like, hey, you're going to fucking live here. You're going to live by my fucking rules. And him and I fucking butted heads quite a bit. Um, but, you know, you get past that shit, you know. Yeah. As, I mean, as I've gotten older and I've matured, him and I've gotten closer and closer. The Vietnam era is like, I'm in fact that's that's the whole reason I even joined the military to begin with. Oh no shit! Yeah, like <laughs> I just I, I I feel like that that era just got. I mean, those were some hard dudes, and they did not have like they didn't have the backing of the country like World War Two did. Not to take anything from World War Two because that was you know what I mean, but but coming home from Vietnam you definitely weren't getting a fucking pat on the back hell no and uh, and I and I think that Vietnam is like really where uh, special operations and and unconventional warfare absolutely. really started to absolutely come into play I agree and uh, yeah I mean so would he tell you things that happened over there or he he didn't really advertise stuff um he wasn't a big drinker but if he you know had a a couple beers on a random occasion or whatever he'd loosen up and some things would kind of slip especially if it was like you know me and one of my stepbrothers were around it was just us and it was kind of you know that that environment where it wasn't a bunch of family members and people around um he had said some things but um yeah he you could tell he had been He'd been through some shit. Like he had pretty severe PTSD. I mean, we knew it. Like I, I, I was exposed to that as a kid before I even knew what the fuck PTSD was. Yeah. You know, even when I joined the Marine Corps, I didn't really have a true understanding of kind of what he went through. Um, but I just remember like waking up in the middle of the night as a kid, and I could like, you know, my my bedroom was kind of right down the hallway from our living room or our family room. And he had a, uh, like one of those lazy boy recliners. And I remember waking up at night and this happened multiple times where I could hear the rocking chair squeaking, like somebody was sitting in it. And I just thought it was really bizarre. I'm like, you know, as a kid, you're like, oh my God, is there a ghost in the house or whatever? And I remember waking up in the middle of the night and just not being able to resist going out there and see why this chair was squeaking. So I'd get up like I was going to the bathroom and, uh, He'd be sitting there, like in the dark, with his three fifty seven Magnum sitting on his lap. Fuck, man. And like, I don't know what kind of state of mind he was in, you know, or what 
he was doing. I didn't ask. I just remember going out there, seeing it, and him be like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I had to go to the bathroom, you know. And so I didn't know at the time. I thought it was really strange. But years later, as I came to understand what PTSD was and kind of some of the things associated with having PTSD, I kind of realized, well, you know, he was just kind of having one of those moments, you know. I mean, you probably, you probably fucking saved his life by coming out of your room. There's, there's no telling, dude. You know? There's no telling. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, do you see, like, a lot of similarities between what you've gone through and, like, looking back, what he was doing? Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah? You know, a lot of the, the isolation. Yeah. Know, isolation, the, you know, anger, stuff like that. You know, you're, you're trained, you know, to act with violence. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? And you come back, you know, and you're put into civilization and you're expected to act as, you know, a normal member Forget of everything you know. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, so I can, I can surely relate to seeing how he had reacted at certain times and the way he was. And, you know, surely does, uh, does relate to, you know, the way I've kind of dealt with it. So growing up, did that... Did those stories, is that what inspired you to become a Marine yourself or walk us through that? Not really, because I mean, well, in a sense, yeah. Like he did tell me a lot of cool stories about like the Marine Corps and, you know, uh, like, you know, some of the experiences he got to, you know, got to enjoy. Uh, and my dad did the same thing. You know, they, at the time, they wanted me to join the Marine Corps. They knew that it was going to be a good thing. It would set me straight. It would set me up. Even if I did one enlistment, they knew that the Marine Corps was going to be a good thing. So they had always kind of pushed, you know, Hey, you're going to join the Marines. Are you going to, you know, my, my dad just kind of made like, he just kind of was like, you know, well, the Marine Corps, you know, set you up, you know, you get free college and you, you teach you discipline and, you know, you'll be regimented. You'll meet some really good people. Uh, but, I don't know, man. It was in the back of my mind. I kind of always knew that I was going to join. What age would you say? Like it became like very apparent. Like, well, this is uh, where I'm going. Honestly, man, nine eleven. Nine eleven. Yeah, like I, I always like even as a kid growing up. Like I watched, you know, like Full Metal Jacket and you know different war movies and stuff because I found that very intriguing. And as a kid, I was always like a little shit. I was always getting into fights and beating people up and stupid shit, you know. Um, so I was always, I just love that adrenaline, you know, and I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to, you know, protect the people. And that's kind of essentially what, you know, you were trained to do. And, um, how old were you, uh, when the towers went down? I was, I want to say I was 16 years old. I was sitting in, I was sitting in math class. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's kind of vague to me and how it happened, but I just remember, uh, the phone ringing in the classroom, my, my teacher's phone's ringing and he answers the phone. It was like, like, as if like, he never stopped, but he stopped like as if it was an emergency. And next thing you know, uh, he hangs up and he had a TV in his classroom. A lot of us, you know, growing up, you remember you had like some days you would watch like movies or documentaries or history or something like that. He had a TV in his classroom and he rolls the TV out and he plugs it in and 
he turns on the TV and we just are watching, you know, the towers had just fell, um, you know, chaos had ensued and, you know, we're all kind of like, we're kids, man. We're looking at each other and we're like, the fuck is going on? Like, what just happened? Slowly but surely, like, you know, this picture is being painted as to what just happened, you know, to our country, you know? Yeah. Um, and I had some time to kind of really, you know, ponder the whole thing that was going on. And uh, that was kind of the, that was kind of the moment, man. That was the moment for me. I knew right then and there, I was like, I'm fucking going. No shit. So like, as it's happening and like, oh dude, I was, time, that's when you're yeah. like, this is, I'm fucking going. I was so like, fucking enraged, dude. Like I was so enraged. I just wanted to get in on the fight, you know? Yeah. I knew that. I knew who was responsible for that attack on our own soil, and I just wanted, I was out for blood. Damn. That's pretty heavy yeah. uh, for a 16 year old. So, when did you wind up, when did you actually enlist in the Marine Corps? Well, it's kind of interesting. I didn't enlist till I was 18, but I had moved out of the house at the age of 16. No so, shit. Yeah, I was, I was living on my own at the age of 16. All on your own. Yeah, like what? I literally was in high school and I had a fucking apartment and a job. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. So from that age of like 16 to 18, there was a lot of fucking off in between there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Boozer? Oh, dude. Like not really booze, but just like adrenaline junkie. Like just, I used to street race a lot. I had a couple of the Fox body style Mustangs and I was into muscle cars. I was into street racing. I was into going fast. And, uh, I'm telling you, if I, if I hadn't joined the Marine Corps, I would have ended up either dead or in jail. Like I'm convinced that I would have ended up either dead or in jail had I not joined the Marine Corps. Damn. Yeah, I can relate to that. I could definitely relate to that. But, uh, so, so you joined at 18. At 18. Yep. At 18. Um, you know, I was talking to my recruiter, um, you know, a really good dude, Jason Batson. Um, and him and I actually became pretty good friends. Like we, we hung out quite a bit. Like, I don't know. He, I, he took a liking to me and, um, he wasn't one of those recruiters that was just like, you know, Hey, like, you know, you should do this. And, you know, was just worried about, you know, hitting his quota. He really did give me some tips and pointers to kind of get me pointed in the right direction to help set me up for success once I did, you know, graduate boot camp and all that stuff. But, yeah, 18 happened. I remember at the time that I was supposed to go, there was a huge hurricane growing up in Florida. It's a huge hurricane every summer. But there was a huge hurricane coming, and I was kind of torn between, okay, do I stay and, like, make sure my family's going to be okay or do I go and uh you know I don't know what what's going to happen my dad was like you need to go just go like don't worry about anything at home this is your time go which uh sorry let me interject here I'm just curious which real dad stepdad which one was kind of like guiding you in that direction my real dad yeah my real dad, my real dad yeah your stepdad was he like he get in there or no not really um you know my dad was probably the most impactful individual in my life Mm -hmm. um so you know when when he you know he was a a father but he's also a mentor and and, you know he yeah my dad you know he he was probably one of the biggest 
you know, models in my life in terms of being a mentor and a father, you know, and he, uh, and what he thought meant a lot to me, you know, I was very critical of myself and, and everything that he would say and do, like I would try to learn from him because he's just full of knowledge. And, uh, he just, he, he told me, he's like, you need to not worry about what's going on here. If this is what you want to do, you need to go. Don't sit back. Don't just go. No shit. Yeah. No. And, uh, knowing like knowing that you wanted to go to combat. I don't think it was really a reality for him at that point because this was like, I mean, it was, it was still early on. Yeah. And, uh, I just don't think it really registered for him. Yeah. Uh, until I graduated boot camp, got assigned to my unit, you know, went through the school of infantry, assigned to my unit, uh, and started a workup to, to deploy. You know, we started training right off the bat. So you went, hold on, let's backtrack just a second. So you went in Marine Corps, you go to, like, what What was your contract? Basically, I, I signed up to be a ground pounder, to be an 0311 infantry rifleman. What's that pipeline look like? Honestly, man, it's, the pipeline is short. You go to, you go to eight-week course, school of infantry, and they teach you just basic infantry skill sets, you know. Uh, different weapon systems, different tactics, you know, patrolling, hand and arm, arm signals, uh, radio communications, just basic stuff that can be built upon. Once you get to your unit, the follow-on training continues. It's a little bit more advanced, uh, a little bit more fine-tuned, if you will. So, You know, one thing that, uh, like, really that I want to say about the Marine Corps is – or I want to ask actually is I mean, a Marine like grunt unit is extremely fucking effective at what they do. And, uh, historically, not just, you know, modern day warfare, uh, you know, starting from nine 11 in the middle East and, uh, to the invasion of Fallujah and shit, but, you know, Vietnam, uh, Somalia, they're more hungry than any other fucking branch than any other unit. It's a very young demographic. And, uh, what is it about that? Like, uh, that's different than the other branches, I guess is kind of what I'm asking is, is at what point or what do they do in that training that motivates, uh, the Marines so much more than, than, than the other units. I mean, every single fucking Marine that I meet is, I mean, they, they are fucking hungry. (laughs) And, uh, and I can't say that for, for every unit, uh, in the other branches. Yeah. I'd have to agree with that. Um, it's funny you mentioned that because we, you know, I respect all branches of military. I don't give a shit whether you were a cook or whether you were a gunner in a turret, like you were, contributing to the mission in some aspect you've got my respect but it took me time to grow to that have that mentality uh i used to be like you know fuck that if you're not an infantry you're just a pogue pogue being the acronym we use for personnel other than grunt um but we used to laugh and be like you know people that had never done time in the military before would ask me like what's the biggest difference like in the army and the marine corps and by no means my bash in the army, but I used to be like, all right, so think of like meat eaters and leaf eaters. You've got the two here. 
uh, we're carnivores. Like, and uh, I don't know, man. It just, I think it, it starts from the day you arrive at boot camp and you step on those yellow footprints. They literally break you the fuck down mentally, physically, psychologically to nothing. I mean, I'm seeing, I'm sitting there watching grown fucking men cry like babies to go home. You know, guys claiming that, you know, all of a sudden now their religion doesn't allow them to, you know, to uh, be involved in the training that we're required to do. Uh, and I basically, man, it's it's like a mentality that they ingrain into you, just the way that they train you and then they build you back up, you know, to, to be what they want you to be. And I think it's just like by the time you graduate boot camp, especially in a wartime like you know, you're hearing and seeing about all this shit that's going down and you just got these, you know, guys that just got done training their entire life for three fucking months consisted of making it so that they can go. Yeah. To knowing that they're going to go to combat, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know, man. I, I, I really think it's it's a lot of tradition the way from boot camp as regimented it is, the way the drill instructors are. I mean, it is... It's, it's, I'm going to say like for me, boot camp from a physical aspect was not a challenge. I, I, you know, I was prepared. I made sure that I prepared for boot camp. You know, I, I, physically I was there. What I wasn't ready for was the psychological aspect. Yeah. And, and that's where they really kind of build you up. And, uh, man, by the time you graduate boot camp, man, you're just, you know, you're a machine. You're thirsty for blood, you know, and they've trained you to be this machine. Yeah. I mean, it's fucking effective. And, and another thing that uh, I find really common amongst Marines is, is uh, I mean, you guys are fucking tight and you take care of your own. And in a lot of other units, um, especially in soft units, there can be, uh, we can be a little dramatic at times but um <clears throat> i mean it it functions and you know and, and we're very effective but uh i can't say that about we can flip the switch and turn it on you know what i mean uh and we can also turn it off and that's when usually you know bored soft guys a lot of fucking drama winds up uh happening sometimes and but i don't really see that in the marine corps and one thing I noticed when I was going through training, uh, both at, uh, in the SEAL teams and at CIA, was um, a lot of the other branches, like guys, like they finish their shit and they're fucking gone. And at a very young age, when I went through buds, I think uh, I think when I got, I was about nineteen, and um, the guys that were switching over from the Marine uh, grunt units were always the last ones out. They were always the ones that were um, helping guys with their swim times. They were helping guys with their rifles, how to clean them, how to take them apart. It was it was always uh, the Marines or Navy corpsmen who uh, served with the Marine. They were unit. attached to them, yeah. Um, they just they had that shit down pat. Every fucking one of them that I met, and uh, they were all solid dudes. In fact, the guy that won Honor Man and Mike in my buds class was was a uh, former force recon guy but I, I just 
help me understand like what what happens because it's it really is every one of them that I've met is like that. Uh, I think there is. Um, you know, they they really uh, put a lot of emphasis on. I'll give you an example. You know, if you're on a on a platoon run or something, you're only as fast as your slowest man, right? So everybody knows. Like, I don't give a fuck if you can run three miles in 17 minutes. This guy here can only run it in 22 minutes or 23 minutes. We need to up his run time because as a as a unit, you know, we're only as fast as that guy. And I think that crosses over into every aspect, whether it has to do with, you know, training or whether you're in combat or you're in schools and you're learning, just gaining more knowledge. I think we've just always had that, you know, that mentality kind of ingrained in us to, you know, help the guys within you because it's not about you. Collectively, you're a unit and the success of that unit doesn't just rely on one or two people. It relies on everybody within that squad or that platoon. So, but it's also tough to say. I mean, it's part of the process, you know, it just from tough start. to pinpoint it. Yeah. They, I mean, they break you down and just everything, all the training, which I mean, it's been so long for me. I can't even recall half the shit we did in boot camp. Um, but so you join at 18, get through boot camp, you go to, infantry school and then you get to what unit i get assigned to second battalion second marines and what year is this this is 2000 this is the end of 2004 uh i want to say it was like probably december actually it was probably december time frame of 2004 maybe January of 2005, I get assigned to 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines. Okay. And that's uh, um, stationed there in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Okay. What? How much time has? How much time does it take to show up to boot camp, get through that, go to infantry school, now you're at the unit? What? How much time are we talking? Six months, a year? Five, five months. You got three months for Marine Corps boot camp, and then the School of Infantry is eight weeks, and so at another two months, you're looking at five months. Um, sometimes when you graduate boot camp, you might get a week of leave between the time you graduate boot camp and the time you go to school of infantry, or you might get a month. It just really depends on time of year, holidays, you know, stuff like that. No shit. So in five months, you go from fucking dumbass high school kid who's racing cars to a fucking warfighter within five months. Completely yeah. changed mindset. Everything's different. Yeah. I wouldn't say, you know, a, uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that you're a, you know, full-fledged, like, ready-to-go warfighter, but, I mean, you've got, you've got some training under your belt, you know, you've got that mentality ingrained in your head. Uh, at that point, you know that, like, it's happening. I mean, you're definitely a warfighter, whether you like it or not, <laughs> you know what I mean, because yeah. you're fucking going. Yeah. And so, how long were you at that unit until you got your first deployment orders like six months that's it yeah like when i got to the unit they had already they were pretty much had already started a workup you know workup for the deployment can last anywhere from you know five months to nine months depending on how much time you have 
Uh, and when I got there, they were already in the middle of a workup. So I got there and jumped right into training. I mean, we were going to places like, you know, going out to California and doing training there on Lejeune and stuff like that. Like we were, we were getting ready, you know, and it was shortly after that when we got our date as to when, when we were leaving. How long did you have before you were leaving? Um, it was about, you talking about for training? Uh, for your first deployment. Between the time I got to my unit and the time. Yeah. Uh, it was probably about six months. So, okay, so we're looking at a year from enlistment to deployment? Pretty much. Less than a year. No shit. Yeah. Where did you? Where were you going? Uh, we were going to Iraq. We were going to uh, a place called Al Karma, Iraq, which is just north of Fallujah. Oh, uh, fuck. Anybody that's been deployed to Iraq probably knows about uh, the city of Karma or the town, the village of Karma. Um, it's a bad fucking place, man. Yeah. Probably one of the fucking worst places I've been in my life. Had they already, had the Marine Corps already invaded Fallujah at that you, point? Yes. That was 03, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. The initial invasion had already taken place, um, but there was just a lot of residual just bullshit still going down. Um, so you're like fucking, what, 19 years old at this time? Yeah. yeah. What, um, how did they tell you, like, where you're going? Do they, do they... I mean, I know how they do it in the SEAL teams. You kind of know, like, the entire fucking workout yeah, where you're going. it's different because it's like, you know, they really utilize the chain of command and, and the line company or the infantry units. Uh, so somebody in my position, you know, I didn't know shit. I just did what I was told, and that was it. I followed orders. The way they let us know, I guess, you know, as, as it got closer to deployment date, they called in the platoon sergeants and the squad leaders, and they, you know, sat all these guys down, let them know where we were going, roughly about how long we were going to be gone, and they were then ordered to, you know, hey, you need to disseminate this information to your guys uh, with an OFC, a laundry list of shit that needs to be done prior to deployment, you know, next of kin and, you know, you know, living wills and shit like that, shit that you normally, like, you don't really think about, but that's the shit you really got to take care of before you leave. Yeah. I mean, did any of that shit even seem real at the time? Did it hit you up what you were getting ready to go do at all? No, no, nope. I don't think it hit me until I stepped off the bus in Kuwait. Oh yeah. We got, we were in Kuwait and stepped off the bus and uh, that fucking door opened, dude. And it was like, think of like when you open an oven door, how that fucking dry heat just fucking hits you. Yeah. That's what it felt like when the door to that bus opened and we got off and we looked around and we're like, it's going to be a long fucking summer, boys. Whole fucking whole nother world. Yeah. Yeah. What did they, did you have any fucking clue how dangerous, how bad it was where you were going? Did they give you a briefing or were they just, I mean... This is where we're going. Get your shit ready. This is when we leave. Dude, honestly, man, when we got there, I can't remember the unit that we that we did left seat, right seat with, but they went out with us for a few days, you know, on some convoys and stuff, and they were like, yeah, man, we've gotten like two engagements in the last six months. It's been really quiet, you know, uh, not really much to report. You know, they gave us what info they had, but it was really not that, Connecticut of an environment at that time. No shit. Yeah. 
And then if you fast forward to a month or two into our deployment, we were getting engagements every fucking day, getting blown up by IEDs, rocketed. I mean, you name it, dude. It was happening. And there's a reason that that, that, that took place. But, uh, oh, shit. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick commercial break, and uh, we'll pick up right where we left off on your first combat deployment. Sometimes these episodes can be pretty long and they will always keep you on the edge of your seat. Rather than sit here and watch it alone, why don't you head over to VigilanceElite.com, buy yourself some company, and get some Vigilance Elite gummy bears. All right, we're back from the break, and we left off. You're on your first combat deployment with the infantry unit. You guys did a turnover, and they told you that everything's been pretty cool and calm and collected in the city and uh, pretty inactive. So let's go from there. Yeah, so they basically tell us, hey, you know, we were just trying to gain the atmospherics as to what's going on, and they told us, you know, hey, it's been uneventful. Um, you know, and they showed us, you know, different different areas and, in, in, uh, you know, in our area of operation, you know, points of interest and things like that. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, when they were like, all right, you guys got it, you know, uh, they were like, you guys got nothing really to worry about. Everything's good. You know, just, you know, mind your P's and Q's, keep your eyes peeled kind of thing. Uh, and it wasn't wasn't even a week into the, the deployment where, uh, you know, we got our first engagement, you know, it just happened like that. You know, and at the time you had uh, Al Qaeda was was in the area. Uh, that's kind of who we were fighting at the time was Al Qaeda, and um, you know they're always going to test the waters. They know when new units are coming in, you know, so they're going to test the waters. They're going to see what you know what what they're dealing with here. Um, so, long story short, I think we were convoying from one OP to back to Camp Fallujah at the time or something like that. I think we were like transporting. Um, that's what it was. It was our company commander needed to go from one of our observation posts back to Camp Fallujah for a big meeting with the general. And uh, we were the ones that were going to be transporting him and providing security. So, uh, you know, we mount up, we're going on this convoy and we're approaching, you know, we're going down MSR Chicago, which is like the main route, you know, to get back to Camp Fallujah. And there was an abandoned building, uh, you know, kind of off to our right flank and a guy basically just jumped out of the, you know, one of the doorways of the abandoned building and just starts, you know, lighting up the convoy with an AK and, uh, you know, we smoked his ass. It was just like, you know, he, he's done. Stop the convoy. CO decides he wants to get out and check out the situation. So we, we clear the compound, you know, the abandoned house where that guy was in, make sure the guy's, you know, dead and all that stuff. And uh, he proceeds to look at me and one of my other comrades, and he's like, hey, uh, go ahead and put the body on the hood. On the hood of what? On the hood of the number one Vic, which was his vehicle. He put a dead body on the hood of the lead vehicle. He, I was just as shocked as you are, man. I was like, sir, 
And he's like, do what I fucking said. Put that dude on the fucking hood of my vehicle. And so at that time, you know, we're rolling around in in up-armored Humvees. And uh, we we would do random vehicle checkpoints. Like if we were in an area where we wanted to start searching people, we would have 50 yards of or 50 feet of uh, Constantina wire, uh, you know, compressed, you know, essentially it's razor wire, barbed wire, whatever you want to call it. We compress it, you know, coil it up, put it on the hood of the Humvee and strap it down. So this way when we need it, we just cut the straps, pull it out. And we now, now we got our vehicle checkpoint. And uh, so we put this dude on the hood. You have this dead guy. He's bleeding all over the place. He's all kind of tangled up in the, in the sea wire. Hold on. Let's backtrack here. So how many fucking cars are in, uh, in infantry? At this point, I think we had four, maybe five vehicles. Typically, when we roll okay. around as a platoon in that deployment, it was four, four Humvees. But I think we had an extra one because it was the headquarters vehicle, which was, you know, the CO, uh, and then his personal radio guy and all that. So okay, I was expecting like 20, 30 cars. No, this was a small convoy. That's how we rolled around. It's pretty small. And then this guy was just—it was just a loner, just getting yeah, his just a dude. That, on I don't him. know what. Like honestly, man, I don't know what the fuck was going through his head. Like. You're one dude, and you got a convoy of fucking four or five Humvees, but it didn't end well for him. How, how close was he to the convoy? Uh, Man, he was close, dude. He was probably, le- I mean, he's less than 100 yards. Man, if I had to guess, I'd say probably about 70, 70, 80 yards. Okay, that's far. So, I'm, I'm guessing it was like, usually when that happens, everybody wants to pull the fucking trigger. Everybody pulled the trigger. Okay. <laughs> It, dude, we had, so he had a lot we of, had uh, just gotten into country it hadn't been a week and you've got young pfcs and lance corporals who have had all this training for the past year and finally have the opportunity to utilize yeah. it so yeah everybody pretty much you know it, it all happened at once i mean it, it didn't last long but nonetheless yeah. yeah it was a little bit of overkill but so you're 19 years old and you just got in your first engagement and shot your first man and then uh, threw him on the hood of the lead vehicle. Yeah. We had boners up until we were told to put him on the vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> that it kinda, That's where you draw the line, huh? <laughs> well, we were like, wait, what? Guys, this was on? a lot of fun, but uh, shit's getting a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. And from that day on, now, mind you, this is a seven-month deployment. This is not even a week into it. From that point on, for that entire deployment, we were engaging every single day. Every day? Every day. If it wasn't a firefight, it was being rocketed or RPG'd or IEDs. It just, it. there was always something. Mortars, incoming mortars, like, it, it definitely uh, stirred the pot, if you will. How long is a, how long is a deployment with the infantry? Seven months. Seven months? Seven months. Seven times 30, what's that, 210? That's 210 engagements at a minimum. At a minimum, dude. And I mean, sometimes right the there's times where, yeah, we like we would convoy. I remember there was one day where we, my, my vehicle, how the fuck I have all my fingers and toes to this day, I don't know, because I remember a specific day, my vehicle, I don't know how, but by chance, my vehicle got struck by an IED three times in one day. Damn. Three, Three times. fucking times yep. in one day? Yep. What the fuck kind of vehicle were you riding around in? Well, there's a lot of different variables that go into play with, you know, IEDs. Sometimes they bury them too, too far. Trigger man's not on. You know, the 
you know, detonation devices, there's a lag in it. It's not, you know, as accurate as they're hoping for it to be. So we just lucked out, man. Wow. I mean, there was guys that definitely took shrapnel and got injuries and stuff, but, and those were some of the smaller IDs, I guess, that I've encountered throughout my, my time over there. But, uh, I remember that, man, it was like, it was kind of a running joke, you know, as my career progressed, um, you know, and I got to different units. It was kind of like the running joke, like, yeah, I don't want to be in his vehicle because yeah. I was known for getting blown the fuck up. Man, that w- when we were running uh, vehicles overseas, especially in Iraq, that was that was the one thing that fucking scared the shit out of me. And I think I think that was because you you have no control. Yeah, you have, that's, that's right, dude. You have no control, and you know people ask me all the time. You know, hey. What do you think was worse, Iraq or Afghanistan? And I'm like, depends on what you know what we're talking about. But in terms of like, you know, people getting wounded or killed, I felt like Iraq because it was just they didn't really have much of a desire to fight you. Now, granted, they would they would initiate an ambush by detonating an IED and then follow up with some pop shots and a couple rounds, and then they'd be gone. And Afghanistan, I mean, you you know just as well as I do, those fuckers will sit up there in fucking man dresses and flip flops and fight you in the mountains yeah. for days on top. Like, you'll be in a tick for hours. Yeah, they were dedicated. But the IEDs are what really like that was for me too. Like you roll through a marketplace and all of a sudden you see it's just a straight ghost town. Yeah. Like you know shit's about to go down. And at the time we're riding an up armor Humvees like the high back Humvees, which were, you know, their armor about that thick. Now, granted, it's supposed to be titanium armor that comes up on the back of the Humvee. You're sitting essentially in a pickup truck with armored sides on it. But the armor only came up to about, yay, like about this high. So your head's still kind of sticking up. Oh, shit. So you roll in, you hear them, you know, on the mosque, on the microphone of the mosque, they're praying town is just complete ghost town you know shit's about to go down and you're just like do you have translators yeah yeah we had some translators at the time so were the mosques at that time were the mosques uh putting out hey the americans are running a convoy come kill them because they were doing that all over uh all over every ao Mm -hmm. as far as i know yeah uh, especially in that time frame. And that's when the EFPs, I believe 04 was when EFPs made an appearance, which were the worst fucking IED yeah, yeah. Uh, ever at that, probably still to this day. But, well, Nick, I did a lot of research on you uh, before you got here <clears throat> as much as I could. It's kind of hard to research it because you don't post any of this shit anymore. But <laughs> I talked to... Uh, a guy who was there with you and he told me a story that you guys were held up in a building and look at you you don't even know what fuck i'm like yeah which building <laughs> but, it's uh, funny dude because like there's a lot of shit that i've like i don't remember yeah. about like you know my time overseas stuff that i but i'll get around guys that i've served with or buddies of mine and when they start talking, like some of them's memories a lot better than mine. You know, maybe it's part and part to do with my TBI, but they'll start talking and shit starts coming back to me. I'm like, holy fuck, I remember that. Well, let me refresh your memory. So you're taking fire from another building and you were in one of those 
bombed out, fucking half-built Iraqi houses. And there was a small group of guys that was going to go to the house that you guys were getting hit from and uh, kill those fuckers. They needed cover fire. Apparently, the Marines that were on the roof at the time uh, on the machine guns were being pussies. And you ran up the stairs, swatting the Marines off the fucking stairs oh, that shit, were in I the fight, that. and uh, manned the machine gun. And, uh, and then they went over and killed those fuckers. So your buddy Dan, Instagram handle 03OG. Yeah. Ring yeah. any bells? Yeah. Yeah. Dan and I go way back, man. Well, I got him on the phone here. Oh, no uh, shit. Are you serious? (laughs) I got him on the phone here. Oh, dude. Hey, Dan, how's it going, man? Good. Thanks for having me on here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So, I just uh, gave a brief description of the story that we discussed on the phone a couple weeks ago, and I got Nick sitting here, so... I'd like to hear uh, the story from your angle and from Nick's angle. So, man, yeah, I just wanted to, that day was a crazy day. Um, we had, it was toward the end of our deployment, and we wanted to get out of, uh, you know, out of harm's way. We had been operating in a very kinetic environment for the last, you know, seven months. And honestly, every, everyone on our platoon just wanted to make it home in one piece at this point. And, uh, So were you guys uh, side by side when when the initial engagement happened, you and Nick? Yeah, we might have been in, like, the rooms are so small. I mean, we, we were probably within feet of each other, yeah. Same room. Oh, shit. So you fucking run to the roof and uh, give them cover fire, and uh, Dan was able to go and... Yeah, they did a... We had a, probably half a squad do a movement to contact, you know, when we took started taking fire, and I was just you know trying to use up as many rounds as possible that we had up there how many guys dan if you don't mind me asking how many guys uh were engaging you um probably at least 
in the same building? Um, they were in a vehicle too, so they had gotten out and they were. That's what they would do. They do like these little hit and runs almost. They'd set up multiple positions and jump back in their cars or vehicles and dodge off before, you know. Yeah, or they would. Yeah, they wouldn't stay around long, so it's, it's really hard to get a grip on that type. But you know, they they know what they were doing. Um, yeah. And you and how many guys went to go kill five or six dudes? like it yeah dan i think that uh i think it's safe to say that that deployment probably took year years off of our life did you get that dan no i was saying it's it's safe to say that that deployment probably took a few years off of our lives Nick, you showed me a video right before we came up here of your first deployment, and you guys uh, got hit by. It was Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda had coordinated an attack on the uh, Iraqi police station. And you guys found that video on YouTube. The video actually was yeah, it it got released on YouTube somehow. Like, I know that our unit confiscated the, the camera. It, essentially, these guys attacked the Iraqi police station that was had been abandoned by the Iraqi police because shit had got so bad in that, in that AO. Uh, so we basically took it over and made it into an observation post. Well, we get the, all of a sudden, we get the call, QRF, QRF. The police station's getting attacked. Uh, so we roll up there. And you can see the guys playing his day. There's probably half a dozen dudes there, you know, uh, PKMs, RPKs, RPGs, you know, just laying it down to the police station. And we roll up, you know, flank them and just, you know, do our thing. And uh, I guess the video had gotten confiscated. Now, at what point the video went from whoever's hands to making it on YouTube, it, it made it to be pretty famous, you know, pretty infamous uh, attack on the Iraqi police station in Al-Karma. So it's pretty pretty crazy. If we can dig that video up, I'm putting it on. All right, on Dan, it. Dan's got it. Dan, you have that video? Yeah. The police station attack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hey, I got that one. Yeah. <laughs> He's got more pictures and videos. That was uh, yeah, that, that was that day. That yeah, I mean that. I remember that day really specifically. That was the day you guys in your squad reacted to that too as well. Walk us through that if you don't mind.
and it was, off. it was nuts. Holy and, shit. Uh, Nick's squad, I believe, was one of the squads, too, that reacted to that. And they freaking, yeah, they, <laughs> they took those guys off, too. That was a pretty, pretty awesome thing. <laughs> yeah, our, our, my squad was pretty, like, they were pretty lit. <laughs> like, my squad had some problems, like, just the the guys that were in that squad were just not. They had a couple screws loose. Yeah. But it really benefited us for that deployment. I can tell you that. <laughs> I remember looking at pictures. I got these pictures from. Uh, I'll see if I can get into somehow, but of uh, our platoon standing like Corporal Hart, the ceremonies and some god awful fog. And it's like you know, it was nothing to have like almost the entire platoon or half the platoon, you know, all us Corporal Hart and just yeah. Yeah. Damn. Glad we all made it out there alive. That's that's one thing I'll I'll never forget for sure. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you calling in, Dan. And uh, you guys got anything to say to each other before I uh, end the call here? Yeah. Hey, bro. I I really appreciate it. It was uh it was definitely a surprise, and uh, I want you to know I love you, man. I really appreciate it, man, and uh, I'll be in touch soon. All right. Sounds good. Take care, gentlemen. Have a great day. All right, man. You too. Later. All right, later. How'd that feel? Uh, it's crazy, man. Like, that guy, like, Dan and I, I mean, we did everything together, dude. Like, we were, like, inseparable. Like, you know, just good dude. You know, we, everything, everything. Ever since we were in the same company in boot camp, we are in the same platoon, you know, all through School of Infantry. We were in the same platoon all through, you know, 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, that whole deployment. Uh, we got some good memories, man, some really good memories, you know, of you know, that time. You know, got some, some great memories and some not-so-great memories, you know, with the things that we experienced. But that was pretty cool, man. I was surprised that you uh, you had him on the hook there. Yeah, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, and, and he told me that story, and I was like, holy shit, I mean... You know, you came here, and uh, I think you were a little intimidated because of some of the guys that sat in that seat. But, I mean, just that one story that he told me out of the, you know, I mean, fuck, that alone, that deployment alone, what did we just say? We had 20, 210 engagements at a minimum, and uh, you yanked a fucking turret off a machine gun and uh, put yourself in harm's way to... So that your buddies could go and fucking kill uh, the insurgents that were trying to kill you, and yeah. uh, I mean that's people don't do that shit. So <laughs> you know that's uh, yeah. Yeah. pretty fucking heroic. Heroic. Yeah, I, I mean at the time I didn't feel it was heroic. I still don't. I mean I feel like I mean it's just one of those things, man. It's like instinct kicks in, and that's what I've I've said for the longest time, like guys that that work in the soft community that do like do what you did and do what you know what i did and stuff like that can't be taught 
Yeah. You know, having that natural instinct to react and to do what needs to be done, you can't train for that. Like, it's just, you're either going to do it or you're not. You're either going to be the guy taking cover or you're going to be the guy that's suppressing fire to make sure that your guys, you know, your squad, your platoon, your team, whatever it may be, uh, you know, doesn't get whacked. So, yeah. Well, for those of you listening who want to know uh, who Dan is, you can check him out on Instagram at 03-OG. And uh, there's some interesting stuff on there. Yeah. But um, <laughs> so moving forward in that deployment, uh, I was really pumped about that phone call. And I wanted to get him on here and reconnect you guys because that's probably been a minute. Yeah. And um, But is there anything else that was a major event that happened? on that first deployment there's so much stuff that happened man but uh it, it all just kind of runs together uh, i learned a lot that was the most important thing is that you know that deployment for me really helped set me up uh for the soft world you know it it gave me an appreciation that most guys that don't get to experience that lifestyle or being part of a, an infantry unit uh you know comes with so you know i'm grateful for that that's my roots that's where i came from you know, I didn't start out, you know, as a, as a soft team guy. I started out as a ground pounder, as an infantry guy. I get dudes that hit me up all the time, and Like, whether it's young guys that are getting ready to go into the military or guys that have done a few years in the military as infantry who are getting ready to transition, they're going to go to take assessment selection, you know, to go to MARSOC or whatever, and they'll hit me up and they'll say, hey, do you have any recommendations, you know? And you know, I try to tell – I try to give them tips and pointers and stuff, but – the biggest thing is you can never be too prepared. Yeah. Go prepared, you know? Yeah. So. so let's move forward then. So then at some point you decided uh, you wanted to move into MARSOC mm-hmm. and become a Raider. So let's, let's revisit that experience. Yeah. So, well, at the time, Marine Raider wasn't even a thing now granted the marine raiders goes dates back to world war ii right uh the marine corps has been conducting special operations for as long as they've been you know around uh now it wasn't until 2006 where we were taken under the wing of socom and became what is now known as MARSOC, the Marine Special Operations Command, or the Marine Raiders. Um, at the time, it was still just the old force reconnaissance companies, and it was a di- totally different format um, on how these companies were, were laid out in terms of the teams and all that. I didn't know really anything about it. I just know that my company commander pulled a, like, a select few from the company you know, I don't remember how many guys it was, but it was like probably 20, 30 dudes from the company. And he said, Hey, there's a reason you're here. I have, you know, basically requested that you individuals come here. And it's because I want to provide you with an opportunity that's out there. And that is to go and be a part of this MARSOC unit as security platoon. Uh, and at the time we're you know we're young dude we just got back from our first deployment and we're looking around each other going what's marsoc you know at the time we were already counting down the days to when our 
our first term was up because life sucked so bad on that first deployment and just with that infantry unit like you were just looked at as another number so it's like we had already made our minds up that we're getting out but this opportunity had been presented to us hey you can take an indoc and try out to go and if you make it there's good things to come so uh, at that point really didn't have shit to lose I just knew that life was miserable where I was at and I wanted a change I wanted an opportunity to kind of better myself and uh so i did it took the you know the little screening and in doc that they had um ended up making it and went over to marsoc as part of the uh trailer slash security platoon and essentially what our job was to do is uh basically provide security for the dasser platoon which uh, is basically a short acronym uh dasser being direct action special reconnaissance uh we would provide security for those guys when they're going in to do raids or do a hit on a house or something we would be the ones manning the the heavy guns the machine guns you know with our experience and so you guys were like a blocking force essentially essentially squirters. Man, essentially yep squirters making sure there were no squirters making sure if there were any reinforcements that came in while our our teams were boots on the ground and you know were, were inside you know whatever compound or house that we were hitting you know, just making sure that they could go in there and do what they needed to do without worrying, worrying about the outer cordon. Okay. So, real quick for the audience, a squirter, get your mind out of the gutter <laughs> But uh, a squirter is uh, basically when uh, a unit hits a house or a compound or whatever it may be, the people that are bad that are in that compound that run uh, and try to get away from destiny uh a blocking force is there to uh basically eliminate them so that they don't get away and fuck another unit up <clears throat> so uh we call that squirter control or uh, a blocking force yep uh so you so you're a blocking force for marine special operations and um so basically you were hand selected yeah essentially um you know when i got there um, I mean, dude, we had the, that was the longest workup prior to deployment I have ever done. I mean, we shot, I can't tell you how many thousands of rounds of ammo, um, different shooting packages and training, different training packages and stuff. Uh, it was all, you know, really great training. They ended up uh, making me an element leader, you know, uh, during that time. So I had, you know, had a fire team under me that I, you know, that we deployed together and all that. Did you work with the Spec Ops unit as an infantryman? Yes. Yeah, like while we were there, everything was kind of like whatever training they conducted, we were conducting. And we were everything we did was together because ultimately by the end of that workup, we needed to be meshed as one because we were going to be, I mean, we're there helping each other, you know. So, yeah, everything. And that's that was cool for us as infantry guys that went over. We had gotten training that we had never even dreamed of ever getting. I mean, going to Hawthorne, Nevada, doing, you know, high altitude shooting. And we went up to, you know, Fort Campbell and trained with, uh, yeah, I think it was fifth group or whoever it was that we were training with. And, you know, training with, you know, little birds and, you know, uh, Apaches and stuff like that, you know, calling for air and, you know, engaging targets and stuff like that. Just stuff that we had never really thought we'd get the chance to do. And it was cool. We got to do all that stuff. The biggest difference 
you know, from infantry uh, transitioning over to MARSOC was the funding. Yeah. Where, when I came up in the Marine Corps, it was always do do what you can, make do what you can with very little. Like we always did the most we possibly could with the little bit that we had. And when we went to MARSOC, we had all the ammo we needed. We had the weapons we needed. We had the gear that we needed, you know, yeah. all that stuff. So it was a totally different world. How long after the train? How long after you were hand selected to do security for um, Marsoc or Marsoc or reconnaissance at the time? It was it when we went over is when it turned when it was turned to Marsoc. Okay, that was in two thousand six. Okay, how long after you got there did you deploy again with that unit? Um, well, yeah, that was I got there. Soon as we got to Marsoc, um, it wasn't but maybe two weeks, and we rolled right into a workup, and that was a nine-month workup. And I'm talking, we did everything. Oh shit! Yeah, nine months. Nine months. And you're working with the operators. Yeah, yeah. Essentially working with the operators. Um, you know, different school. We went. We had a school phase where guys were tasked out to go to different schools and learn different things. And then once that phase was over, we come back together. And we trained together collectively as a unit. How did they receive you guys? Were they? They hated us. They fucking hated you. They fucking hated us. You're a blocking force for them. They fucking. And they fucking hated you. Yeah, like they hated us. I'm trying to remember uh, a guy that I later down the road ended up becoming friends with. Um, he's a very well known guy in the community, but he hated us with a fucking passion. He's like, basically, I remember one day he's like. You know, he's talking to one of his buddies, and he's like, "Man, he's got these dudes are like little fucking Iraqis. Why are they even here? You know, they just didn't want us there. And the reason being is that we didn't come up the way that they did. You know, when they graduated the School of Infantry, they may have went right directly to, you know, BRC, the Basic Reconnaissance Course or Amphibious Reconnaissance School, uh, and we just didn't we didn't go that same pipeline. We didn't go, and honestly, to them, like we just were not up to par you know we we didn't we couldn't do what they did because we didn't have the training and the experience we just weren't as good as them you know yeah and, but you uh, weren't doing what they were doing you know yeah man it's just one of those one of those things man the egos were flying around and you know and and we just kind of kept our mouths shut we knew that we were the new kids on the block and we didn't really you know have what they had and but we knew that our time would come. Our time was going to come where we could prove ourselves and we would be looked at as an asset. And that time did come, you know. So you go on deployment. Where are you headed? Jalalabad, Afghanistan. Oh, J-Bad. Yeah, old J-Bad. It's a nice town. Yeah. So you're in J-Bad. And what, what's the mission? Because it's a... Sounds like infantry was a lot of presence patrols and and uh, kind of PSD work for yeah, high-ranking yeah. individuals. Yeah. Now you're attached to a SOCOM soft unit, which you know the mission is completely different. Yeah, totally different. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's not like you're you, you we're not out there doing like things like presence patrols and you patrolling the area just to kind of gain atmospherics. Um, Every time you went outside of the wires with a purpose, yeah, uh, we were running missions. You know, uh, you know, very planned out. Uh, you know, down to the gnats ass detail missions. You know, running raids and doing, 
you know, big sweeps of villages where we're going through and, you know, it might be rolling through a, you know, Taliban, you know, infested village. Uh, you like that word infested. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was very different though. And our mission again was to provide security for the Dazra platoon. That was our, pretty much our, our main goal there. Uh, making sure that they, you know, could do what they needed to do. Uh, manning the heavy guns, setting a cordon, you know, all that stuff. But it was for, for more, more or less direct action raids and stuff like that. Like yeah. That. yeah. HVTs and shit. Yeah. Focusing on HVTs or at some point they changed to HVIs because HVTs wasn't politically correct or whatever, but you oh, get the picture. I figure. Yeah. Um, how did the op tempo change? Was it were you guys still engaged, getting in engagements every night, or did it kind of change a little bit? It changed. It wasn't that deployment at first. It wasn't really quite as kinetic. I mean, we did get in some engagements, but it wasn't as reoccurring as it was. Um, we did have lots of uh, get lots of radio traffic, um, you know, and cell phone traffic that we were tracking. They were planning on taking over our compound. Um, you know, breaching the walls and taking over. So that was always there. Um, in addition to, you know, being out outside of the wire when we're doing missions and whatnot. Um, but uh, we we did get engaged. Um, and ultimately, you know, as sad as it is to say, that deployment got cut a little bit short because uh, that was the very first uh, MARSOC company to deploy to Afghanistan. That was like, since MARSOC had been stood up, we were the first ones to go. What and year is this? This is, uh, we left in the beginning of 2007. Okay. And uh, we ended up getting kicked out of country. I've heard about this incident. <laughs> so I've heard about this incident at the first, the first MARSOC unit to deploy under SOCOM. Yeah. And, uh, I heard it was a, uh, a fucking shit show. <laughs> yeah, to say the least, man. It was a Fox company. And, uh, I mean, I was working at the time under probably the most, res- one of the most respectable officers within the Force Reconnaissance MARSOC community uh, at the time. Major Fred Galvin um, was our company commander. And, um, you know, he, he basically, he knew what the fuck we were there to do. And, um, you know, unfortunately the incident that happened that resulted in us getting kicked out of the country, it ruined careers. His being one of them just completely ruined guys' careers. Well, what was the incident? Uh, so those guys recently got exonerated. This has been years. So think from 2007 to when they got exonerated in 2019, that's the amount of time it took. It's fucking 12 years. 12 years, dude. By this point, their careers have went down the drain, and now they're just trying to save what's left of their lives. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, it was a vehicle-borne IED that struck our convoy, and we were being engaged from um, you know multiple different compounds you know, around us and Marines doing what they are trained to do, you know, start to push out of the kill zone and engage the threat. Um, at some point in time, uh, somebody, and now I don't know if this was a tactic that was used 
by the Taliban at that time saying that there were there were you know innocent civilians that had gotten killed as a result of this but it it went up to the top of the flagpole man and it was a huge investigation on why these marines basically killed innocent civilians in Afghanistan everybody kind of forgot the fact that what initiated this engagement was it was a car bomb yeah you know a car bomb was driven into one of our vehicles on the convoy and we did what we were trained to do yeah i I remember hearing about that and yeah special operations handles shit a lot differently and it's a lot more surgical and uh it was very Yeah, it, like yeah. I'll give you an example, man. Like for those of you that haven't been to Afghanistan before, you probably wouldn't know this, but like there were times where we'd go outside of the wire to zero in different weapons. You know, go out, go out, test the the uh, Mark 19s, test 50 cal's, make sure everything was working properly, knowing that we had an upcoming mission. Dude, those little kids there, little Afghan kids, they would literally be sitting there off the side of the Humvee as, you know, we're engaging, you know, targets, you know, or just, you know, at the range or whatever, and they would be sitting there collecting the brass. So I remember, you know, one of the investigators is some high-ranking, you know, uh, officer who didn't know what the fuck he was talking about because he had never been in combat before, was like, well, you guys say that you were engaging enemy combatants that were firing from you you know we went back days later we didn't find any spent brass on the, on the ground and we're like well no fucking shit because it's been collected you yeah. know so somebody that hasn't been to afghanistan wouldn't know that or hasn't been you know uh in combat per se but yeah well i mean it's really easy for these fuckheads to you know backseat quarter backseat quarterback an entire event and you know they don't even know what the fuck it feels like to get rocked by an IED. Then you throw in, you know, you brought up the kids, and this reminded me. I remember when I was in Afghanistan, they were taking kids and filling their bicycle tires with explosives, and they would have the kids ride their bike towards the convoy and start detonating their fucking bicycles. Yep. And you've got people that are, you know, they're wearing the the the, the man jammies uh, attire. And they'll clack rounds at you, you know, off at you with an AK, and then hide the AK under their under their fucking clothes because they're so baggy. And when all this shit's happening all at once, it can be real fucking hard to ID and pinpoint exactly where the threat's yeah. coming, especially when it's coming from fucking everywhere. Yeah. And uh, I mean, they would have guys dressed up like women yeah. in burkas wearing a suicide vest that'll blow a fucking building down. And uh, and then you got some fucking jag that comes in and, uh, you know, backseat quarterbacks the whole fucking thing and uh, ruins careers and lives and... Yeah, fucking sucks. So, so you went home and... <clears throat> yeah, we went home, man. Um, that was, uh, it was tough. You know, after a nine-month workup, you know, it was really tough to to come to terms with the fact that, like, well, that was, that sucked. 
but also it was kind of it sucked for us because all of SOCOM you know is looking at us through a microscope at that time yeah to see what are the marines going to do yeah like how are they going to perform on their very first deployment and it was just a complete you know in the eyes of the time in the eyes of SOCOM it was a complete flop and that, that was in JBAD that happened yeah I had heard that was in Kabul but Kabul it yes, was in Kabul. It was in Kabul, yeah. Okay. We, yeah, we were working in JBAD and in Kabul at the time, though. We were uh, we were operating right out of Kabul Air Base there, and that's where it happened. How long were you guys in country? How Like, how long was that deployment? I think from, it ended up, like, from start to finish, it maybe ended up being, like, 100 days. Oh, shit. Okay. So maybe 120 months. days. Yeah, it, it got cut real short, man. Maybe 120 days tops. Yeah. That's still, you know, when you guys got home, how was the morale with everybody? Morale was low, dude. Morale was real low. Um, we didn't know what was going to happen with the guys that were under investigation. You know, we didn't, we really didn't know what, what the future was going to hold for them. Um, and there was a lot of changes made. Like when we got back from that deployment, they completely did away with the whole, format of the company you know where you had your trailer slash security platoon you had your dasser platoon that worked together um that went away that completely went away so at that point it was like all right so all you guys that came over from second battalion second marines don't really have a purpose for you anymore so you need to go home so you're going back to the grunts. Well, that's what most of the guys ended up doing, got sent back. There was a, a select few of us that they, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how it happened or why it happened. Essentially, uh, I guess, you know, some of the guys, you know, the company commander and platoon sergeant from that DAS platoon, you know, saw something in a few of us that, you know, he really liked and thought that we could, you know, uh, you know, I don't like what I just said, but anyways. I think what you're trying to say is you just got fucking hand-selected uh, for a second time to... To stay, but on permanent orders. As a actual operator. Yes. Yeah. Now, and that was under the... Um, I don't want to say agreement, but it was basically like, hey, you're getting orders here, but you're going to get schooled the fuck out. Because we understand that, yes, you've got some combat experience. Yes, yes, we feel like, you know, you're an asset to the battalion, um, but we need to get you up to speed. You know, things that, you know, we don't really get as infantry, you know. I, do you know how fucking big that is? <laughs> like, seriously, you got fucking hand-selected to go to a essentially a blocking force for special operation marine special operations marsoc you did that you did a three-month deployment whatever the fuck you did in that three months uh must have been pretty badass because then you were hand selected again uh to come on as a fucking operator yeah, without just, uh, going through yeah because the, the selection uh, course well, and and it's just to put this shit in perspective for you like all the way up to the top level at fucking uh dev group and cag you screen to go there. They don't fucking, they're not out there hand selecting everybody. You might get a push like, hey, you might, you might want to fucking go screen and go to dev group. 
they had a dev group doesn't come fucking find you, you know? So yeah, I just want to say that. Did you ever think about at the time? No, dude. And you know, it's weird because at that time we were at a weird transition from force reconnaissance to Marsoc. So there was still a lot of unknown. We were still going through a lot of growing pains. Um, at the time, there was no individual training course, which is like our Q course, nine-month training pipeline that you go through to become a critical skills operator. There was no course. There was no assessment selection. So there was no real option at that point. I could have went to BRC, but mm-hmm. at that point, recon battalion was going to remain as part of the second as the marine regiment and marsoc was going to be part of socom so that training at brc was kind of it wasn't completely relevant you know what i mean because it didn't include a lot of the training that's that you need to have to become a cso or a critical skills operator while i did have some of the amphibious training and stuff like that uh and a land nav piece and whatnot it just wasn't and that's why they developed a much longer in-depth course being the individual training course so yeah at that time i was essentially i got grandfathered and uh you know went to schools and stuff like that uh so but it was at the time i didn't really think of it the, the way you just put it you know yeah well you know that's most guys don't think about that because uh, we're some of us are humble and uh you know some of us aren't but uh I would say the majority of guys are pretty fucking humble, and uh, but I, you know, there's a perspective for you that you probably never thought about, and uh, you should be fucking pretty proud that you were hand selected to become the fucking plank owner of uh, what wound up becoming Marsoc. Yeah. <clears throat> how long was? How many different schools did you go to, and and how long was it before you wound up deploying again? Well, so shortly after, shortly after getting back from the deployment with Fox Company, uh, I basically re-injured, re-aggravated a prior injury from my first deployment. I was involved in a IED rollover incident, uh, basically where my Humvee was flipped. Uh, I broke my back and uh, I had multiple ended up needing multiple spine surgeries as a result of it so that kind of put a kink in the plan of that whole school phase while i did manage to get into a couple schools um you know when i re-injured you know i I think i was at one of the schools uh it was like one of my pme courses which i don't know if you guys did that in navy but like your professional military education courses like the shit that you're required to have in order to get promoted to the next rank I scammed out of those. Did you? And you got lucky. We had, dude. They were like anal. Like you, you were going. Like didn't matter how cool you thought you were, or what you had under your belt. Like you were fucking going. So, uh, I re-injured my, you know, re-aggravated my injury, um, at that at that course, and uh, you know, I had to go. You know, I had to get surgeries and stuff like that. So, I was rehabbing, man. And uh, you know, a lot of people didn't notice, but at the time, like my wife and i had a child who had some severe medical issues you know he was eating through a feeding tube and 
he was really young man he's only like three or four months old and all we knew is that he had some issues going on um and we were trying to get to the bottom of that and like figure out okay what's going on with my son i mean we're traveling all over the country uh you know cincinnati children's hospital duke university uh unc chapel hill you know going to see all these doctors and specialists to perform these different procedures and stuff on my son and different tests and stuff to figure out what was going on so at the time my leadership you know the command thought it was in the best interest uh, of myself and my family uh to get orders to the marine special operations schoolhouse uh, i'd be taken out of a deployable billet put over at the schoolhouse for a term uh, and that would afford me the time needed to be able to one to rehab to get back to full duty and then two to give me the time i needed to be able to take my son to these different you know appointments and stuff like that and figure out what was going on with him and dude that was probably i'd say that time frame was probably the hardest time out of my whole military career even at some of the shittiest times during my deployments like i think that time was probably one of the one of the hardest times of my my military career yeah so you're you're rehabbing your back you're trying to figure out what's going on with your son oh yeah and i'm going through a divorce you're you're going through a divorce yeah and then on top of that you're dealing with all the combat stress that you know comes with the uh yeah. with the job and uh that's a lot of the that's that's a lot to deal with a whole lot <clears throat> so what what happened with your son how's he doing now oh, dude like my son he is light years ahead of where he was at that time i mean they didn't think he would walk they, they, there was a lot of unknown uh he has been diagnosed with autism he has been diagnosed with cerebral palsy which were they were good things we got answers we wanted to know what what's going on why is my son this way uh but ultimately he's gotten the care and the treatment that he needed he's progressed like i said light years ahead of where he is and uh he's good i mean he's he's good to go he's come off the feeding tube he's eating enough food by mouth to sustain his weight uh he does speech occupational and physical therapy every week uh he goes to a school that's specifically for kids with uh, special needs so he's doing great man he's doing awesome that's awesome man. yeah yeah um I, I can't even that's a lot to uh, go through yeah dude and the thing that that really fucked with my head the most was during that time you know I got sent to the schoolhouse specifically for the reason to hey this is going to give you the time you need to get back to full duty take care of your son get your life on track um, but People under the leader, my leadership didn't always understand that. Guys that I was close to understood what was going on, but for the guys that didn't know what was going on, you know, it was tough, man. I'd go, you know, fly up to Cincinnati Children's Hospital for two weeks with my son and my soon-to-be ex-wife uh, to, you know, go have this procedure for my son, and I'd show back up at work, and I'd have a guy be like, oh, cool, it's it's nice of you to come back to work. Would your kid get sick again? Oh, man. And so that shit really fucked with me, man. Like, it... it it hurt because I knew that like I already felt bad enough I already had that guilt trip of not being there yeah. it was already bad enough being at the schoolhouse and being pulled from you know the team so fuck 
But, uh, you know, so there was a little bit of a gap in time between uh, that 2007, 2008 deployment till my next deployment. Um, you know, I did a term at the schoolhouse and then I was sent to the regiment. Um, I ended up coming back to full duty three spine surgeries later i'm still jumping out of airplanes i'm still you know rucking i'm still all the shit that you know doctors told me you're never going to be able to put an 80 pound ruck on your back again and walk you know it's just you're not gonna be able to do that and i just wasn't hearing that noise you know i would see some of the statements that would come back from the hospitals like for my son's treatments and shit and dude astronomical astronomical amounts of money like and I'm thinking to myself, if I get out because of this injury, I'm never going to be able to, like, what are we going to do? Who's going to pay for this? I'm not even, you know, if I get out, insurance companies might not even cover my son because he's got now a pre-existing condition. So that was my motivation to come back to full duty. Fuck, physical man. therapy on base wasn't doing shit for me. I fucking hired a personal trainer at a fucking sports rehab facility that trained fucking athletes. And I went in there, fucking put my goddamn medical record on the fucking table that was about that thick at the time. And I told him, here's my deal. This is what I do. Here's my situation. I need to get from where I'm at back to this. And I paid out of pocket at this sports rehab facility to get back to full duty. Had that not happened, do you think you would have separated at that time? What's that? Had what not happened? Had had your son been taken care of or did not have uh, the medical issues, do you think you would have separated? It's tough to say, man, because, yeah, that my son was a big part of that decision, but also I wasn't ready to drop my pack. Yeah, okay. I just wasn't ready, you know. I hadn't gotten that monkey off my back yet. Yeah. So you went back to war? Yeah, yeah, basically, man. Um, at the first opportunity I was given, uh, I was working – I was working uh, at the at the regiment um, under a uh, master gunnery sergeant, old good old Frank, and uh, I told him, I said, look, I don't give a fuck what it takes, man. If there's any opportunity to get back into a team, I'm, like, sign me up. I'm ready. Like, And uh, sure enough, we had a uh, good a buddy of mine who uh, was actually deployed at the time with uh, Fox Company who was deployed with them and uh he stepped on a pressure plate ied and lost his leg and uh they needed a combat replacement somebody to go over there you know quick fast in a hurry to uh cover down on his his duties so i volunteered for that went over uh 2013 i went over uh this time it was uh went to kabul province and uh essentially finished out the deployment there uh, shortly before coming home, the unit that was coming over to replace Fox Company, uh, Golf Company, um, was getting ready to come and do turnover. And I got an email from a Master Guns back stateside and said, Hey, we've got an 18 Charlie uh, with this team whose wife is having some serious medical complications. He's not going to be able to make the deployment. Would you have any interest in cross-decking? It would help us out tremendously. So that turned into that, you know, four-month deployment. Well, it was 
left of that deployment anyways ended up being four months for me that four month deployment turned into like an 11 month deployment holy fuck yeah 11 fucking months yeah with you didn't come back once i came i went back at that time i didn't know i was going to be cross decking yeah and i had like my house and shit back home uh that i needed to like i i i just wasn't administratively prepared to be gone for that long and i said hey those guys aren't here yet let me fly home for a week let me just get all that stuff you know under wraps make sure it's good to go and i come back so i went home for about a week and a half fuck and then came back and jumped right into a team that i had never worked with now granted i knew i knew a few of the guys in the team i had been through different shooting packages and demo packages and shit like that working with these guys um but for the most part, I was like the new guy on the block. Once so, again, yeah, technically, it went from the training house to right in the fucking thick of it. Yeah. As, I mean, and it's your first, technically, your first deployment as a special operations uh, operator from MARSOC. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, and I was looked at, you know, like, the, the guy, for the guys that knew me in that team, they were excited to have me there because they knew, you know, what I was about. Um, but for the guys that didn't know me, it was like, who the fuck is this guy, you know? So, that first month of that deployment, a lot of it was having to kind of prove myself, you know, let it, you know, showing that I, I was there, you know, to contribute to the team um, and to do bad things to bad people. Yeah. What was the uh, what was the op tempo on this deployment? That op temp the op tempo of that deployment was just insane. No um, shit. We had that's probably I'd have to say that deployment was probably the most fun I've ever had. <laughs> in my really? career. Yeah, I mean it's just that was a correlation of like the years of training and blood, sweat, tears, everything that you put into, you know, uh, you know the training and, and the workups, getting ready for deployments, and then that just having that opportunity being presented with that opportunity of being able to utilize all that training and that's those skill sets and a real life you know real world life kind of thing what was the primary mission was it we were there doing fid you know we had our host nation forces we were running commandos we were running anasf which for those who are not familiar it's afghan national army but they're special forces so we stood up a curriculum and a pipeline for the commandos that wanted to go like a special forces route and get more training. And we literally train those guys on everything. How, how many guys are there? Cause sometimes we did FID and FIB was like fucking one Iraqi, two oh, Iraqis. No, we had two, we had two uh, platoons attached to us. Okay. They were living in the same compound as us. So you're, you're like doing the SF mission for the yeah. most part. Yeah. Now, and that turned into, like, that FID mission turned into more, like, direct action, special reconnaissance-type missions. You know, our job was to be there to mentor and advise the Afghan National Army to ensure that they had the training they needed to be able to take the wheel. Uh, doesn't always work out that way. Yeah. Uh, but during that time, I mean, we were at a VSP, a village stability platform, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere in Herat province right and where we were man it was just surrounded by villages that were nothing but taliban so 
if we weren't outside the wire getting in engagements, they're rocketing the shit out of us and, you know, doing stuff like that. So it was, we stayed busy. And even like the guys in that, that team, like they didn't like to, to have nothing to do. They want, they were always wanting to work. Yeah. Just everybody had like crazy work ethic and just was ready to go. We knew that that deployment was, that was kind of the end of the line. That that deployment was essentially right before the plug was pulled and the majority of forces were pulled out of Afghanistan. And we knew that. All the VSPs were getting demilled and tore down and all that stuff. I know this from when we were working before and I've heard, you know, you talk about it and uh, I've seen the video. But a major event happened that you were involved in again uh, that you can essentially take credit for. So let's go over what happened there. We got, we basically got tasked with uh, going through, you know, got tasked by Siege Soda. They wanted us to go and, and do a sweep through this village um, where they had intel saying that there were some IED facilitators and, and guys that were running IED and weapons facilitators and guys that were running back and forth uh, from Afghanistan and Iran. Guys were coming back and forth. And when they came back, that was essentially the area where all these weapons and IED making materials were being disseminated to Taliban. Uh, so we were, you know, tasked with going through, doing a full sweep of this village, searching everything. It was supposed to be like a two-day op, um, and we were going to walk in because at that time their EW or their early warning signals were just—they were good. They knew every. They if we left the wire, they knew we were coming. If you know, they would have you know little brevity codes. You know, the wolves are coming. The wolves are coming. You can hear on the on the cell phone chatter. Um, and uh, so we said, you know what, fucker, we're going to walk. So you fucking humped in? Yeah, we, we fucking humped in. You know, we had, I mean, you're talking two days, two days worth of shit in a ruck. And you think two days, oh, I'm going to just pack some skivvies and socks now. You need fucking batteries. You need chow. You need enough ammo or if shit hits the fan, you're not going to go Winchester. So we're loaded the fuck down. I Did you guys have any fucking assets or was it just... Uh, as no. far as air or at that QRF? for that for that mission we didn't have there was no QRF we were out there on our own dude like Fuck. there was we were I think sixty miles from the closest base so we were on our own there was no QRF occasionally we would have ISR you okay. know stuff like that but for that that one we did not no shit not until the daytime so nice. we walk in at night um, once we get into the village. You know, we basically hold up in a in a compound, wait for daylight. Daylight comes, we come out of the compound, everybody goes to their positions, and we start our sweep. Wasn't even ten minutes. We started taking fire. Uh, at this point, we had three elements. All three elements were split into different positions. Uh, my element, we slipped into a compound, the closest compound that we could find to take cover. Um, and basically we, we fought from the compound we, you know, they were from all different directions. Um, you know, we cut out murder holes in the walls of this compound. Uh, I got up on the roof, 
uh, for a lot of these houses in Afghanistan, the way that they're constructed, they're essentially mud huts. You know, they're they're hard, not hard as concrete, but they're big mud huts, and they've got these giant domes on the top, uh, almost like fighting positions. And uh, so that's what I did. I I got you know got up on the top of the roof and uh, you know started engaging you know targets, and you can see the guys are running back and forth and you know popping out of doorways of buildings and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was up on the roof. Uh, they kind of honed in on my position. Uh, you know, you could see like where I was kind of tucked in between these two domes. I would put, put my head down and you could see like rounds would be like ricocheting off the top of the dome. And at this time I had a helmet camera on and I'm just kind of, I went back and looked at the footage afterwards and it's like, I'm just sitting there laughing. <laughs> but, uh. It yeah, is weird. Sometimes it's a good feeling when you're getting shot at because, dude, it's like you know what's about to happen. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it just so happened that my team leader happened to be with my element uh, when that went down. He just happened to be with us as we were doing the sweep, and he's down inside the compound and he's on the fucking hook with our JTAC trying to get air assets on the line to get him to come in. And uh, he's like, "Dude, you need to come down. You need to come down." So I come down off the roof. And uh, we had three murder holes, you know, dug out out of uh, different different sides of this compound, one on each side. And uh, so he's like, "Hey, if you want, you know, go in there with so and so, and you know, just just man the murder hole, just you know, see what's going on." So for a while, there there was a lull in fire. You know, it wasn't really shit going on. It got quiet. It went from just like as shit was going off everywhere to just stopped. So my buddy's like, hey, man, I need to piss. You mind just, you know, keep an eye on me? Yeah, dude, go ahead. So, you know, I'm, I'm in this murder hole. I'm just sitting here, and I'm watching. And all of a sudden, I see two dudes on a motorcycle hauling ass. They're trying, they're coming on, and they're trying to flank us this way. I don't know if they had another another element or something that they were staged that we were trying to get, they were trying to get to or what. But I could see when they were hauling ass, they both had man jams and both had AK strapped to their backs, which dude, we were just in a firefight. Like you're a military age male, you're on a motorcycle and you've got an AK strapped to your back. Like, yeah, fair game. Well, as I'm in this, you know, I'm looking through this murder hole. I didn't catch the guys on this motorcycle until I got about to my, my right ladder limit, if you will, or to my, when my field of view, was cut off so immediately the instinct kicks in again i haul ass my buddy's get he's coming from using the bathroom back into the room where we were at and i'm like push him out of the way i'm like move and i'm hauling ass and i I was trying to make it to the other side of the compound so i could get into the other murder hole to see where they were going so at the time we had one of our commandos was was he was in that room and I go in there. I'm like, Hey, let me get in here. Let me get in here. So I get in and sure enough, they're still coming. And, uh, you know, I just engaged a single round to each guy. Uh, first one launched the, the driver, of the motorcycle off the motorcycle. We were at really close range. Uh, I don't think they realized that we had murder holes dug out and they didn't see anybody on the roof anymore. So I think they took that as their window of opportunity to make a run for it. You think they thought you were dead? They don't. I don't think they thought I was dead. They could have thought that. They may have thought that, but they all they know is that there was nobody else on the roof. 
okay. returning fire because when I was up there, I'd pop up over the uh, dome, you know, return some shots, get back down. Well, a good 20 minutes went down when it went by where I wasn't up on the roof. So I think they saw that as their window of opportunity to either try to get away or try to get to another position or whatever they were trying to do. And essentially, I got they got cut off. Yeah. So I engaged both targets. Um, and then the fire starts again. Like, well, let me back up. Engage both targets. You know, I let our team leader know, let our JTAC know, hey, we've got two guys down over here on a motorcycle. All right, we'll, we'll check it out. What range was it? Like, how close? Did, we were probably were? like 50 yards. 50 yards? Not even. Okay. Not even. Now that I'm thinking of it, it's probably closer, like 35 yards. Oh, fuck. It was close. Okay. Yeah. They were real close to the building and uh, where the road was. They were trying to trying to go by. And he flew off the fucking bike. The first dude, the first guy. So the first guy that I engaged was the driver of the motorcycle because that was I wanted to stop the motorcycle. So he was the first one I engaged. Literally, that was my first time ever shooting a guy, a bad guy in combat with a uh, scar heavy. So I know we got a lot of people you either love or you hate the scar. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I'll tell you what it does at close range is pretty impressive. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, essentially kind of launched this guy off the motorcycle. Before the motorcycle could fall over, the guy in the back tried to stand up as the motorcycle's falling over. And about the same time that his feet hit the ground is when I pulled the trigger on the second shot. And, uh, you know, took him out as well. Shit. So you must have hit him from the side then. Yeah, yeah. They were coming from the side. So I hit him both from the side, yeah. Fuck. And they're just one shot? One shot, dude. That's all it took? That's all it took. God damn. One shot on each. That was it. Fuck. And so moving forward, we we had a couple casualties. Uh, we had a medevac bird in route, but because of where we were at, it was too hot. We needed to link up with the other element who that had the casualties. We needed to link up with them, which is like probably 500 yards away. Uh, to another compound to be able to provide security so that the bird, the medevac bird could land and pick up our casualties. How many, were they Americans or were they? We had two, um, I want to say two Afghans and one American. Yeah. There's two, two Afghan national army guys and, uh, you know, one U S coalition guy. Yeah. Um, none of them were severe, but severe enough to where we needed to call a medevac. So we exit the compound you know, we st- we know everything. By this point, an hour or so has gone by with no fire. We go to exit the compound. We don't make it, you know, 100 yards. We start getting engaged again. They were just again? waiting. Yeah, they were waiting for us to, to move. And this time they were behind a wall and they had PKMs, RPKs. Oh, shit. I mean, the whole nine. Luckily, where we were at the time was close to a little irrigation ditch. And... So you're talking a whole, like an element of, you know, six, probably like six soft guys and then like another dozen commandos. And we're all like crawling through this ditch. And I distinctly remember laying face down in this ditch and my ruck, mind you, I packed out my ruck like I was going to need it for two full fucking days. This was supposed to be a 48 hour mission. So I'm crawling through this ditch and I can feel rounds impacting my rucksack, which I do still have the rucksack. Oh, shit. Yeah. So I could feel the rounds impacting. And uh, 
right in front of me is our JTAC. They weren't he, hitting your fucking gummy bears, were they? Oh, dude, that would have been fucking game over if they hit my gummy bears. <laughs> I kept those on my person. Yeah, first line. So, uh, JTAC's right in front of me, and he's on the hook. You know, he's trying to get get Apaches to come in and whatnot, and we're pinned down. And I could, I'm sitting there, and I remember being in boot camp and having to go through the little course that they had with like you know barbed wire little things and you're crawling through the mud and they're like drag your face drag your face and you're like thinking to yourself at the time when the fuck am i ever really going to be <laughs> dragging my face in the fucking mud like what and at that time i was dragging my fucking face dude that's how low i was i was trying to get so small in that little yeah. ditch because i could feel those rounds impacting you know my ruck and i was like man a couple inches lower and they're gonna hit me yeah um all of a sudden this makes sense <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm dragging my fucking face um and sure enough fucking patches fucking come in and just start doing gun runs no shit so yeah, you guys i'm talking danger close because i'm i'm literally in the irrigation ditch right behind our jtac and i can hear him saying i don't give a fuck if we're danger close fucking engage so was this daytime or nighttime? This is daytime. Oh, fuck. Okay. This is daytime. So, so two Apaches come yeah. in and are just fucking destroying everything. And uh, how close? Like less than 100 fucking yards. Close. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. That'll make your asshole pucker up. Fuck if it didn't. Even do. more than it already is. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that, that was like. So that happened. They engaged the enemy, eliminate the enemy, and uh, we keep going. We link up at the other compound. Medevac bird comes in, and then we end up, you know, leaving. But uh, I think it was the following afternoon. Uh, we had a team meeting and the talk, and uh, we're kind of going around the horn, getting intel reports from our intel analysts and different things. You know, trying to just everybody's keeping up to speed. And uh, my team sergeant was like, "Yep." So uh, just so you know, KFED, you got dead milkmen. Everybody's like, what? Dead Milkman was number three on the HVI list at the time. He'd been getting tracked for multiple deployments, multiple SEAL teams, multiple ODAs, trying to fucking get this guy. And it just so happened by chance he was one of the guys on that motorcycle. And you fucking got him. Apparently I got him. And you were the only shooter. Yeah, only shooter. Nobody else saw him because unless you were looking through that murder hole, Damn, dude. You, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been able to see him. So you fucking took out number three. Number at the three. time yeah i think number three has what like a two or three week life expectancy yeah uh for a long time but i mean it's fucking number three that's how'd that feel felt good man felt really good I, at that time i had already been accepted in the team like i'd make friends those guys were awesome like we had been through shit together already but that felt really good and the only way we found out uh was you know just as well as i do like in that culture they're they they are supposed to bury their dead within 24 hour time frame and the way we found out is by that afternoon after we had left because that happened about mid-morning by late that afternoon there was like 350 to 400 people there for a little like funeral service for the burial of dead milkmen how how the fuck so isr feed basically they were able to id him from that you guys didn't take any skin or fucking uh hair hair yeah you did hair hair yeah we took hair samples and stuff uh so between that and then 
you know, all the intel we got, you know, ISR and stuff like that, showing the funeral and everything, uh, all the all the cell phone chatter and stuff that was going on between the locals and the people there. We had gotten dead milk, man. Fuck, man. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll bet they're glad they hand-selected you for that fucking <laughs> unit. <laughs> so, otherwise, that motherfucker might still be running around, especially since everybody was already after him. You yeah. know, uh, and that's how it is too. All the fucking units are competing with each other. You know, yeah. it's the fucking seals are competing with Marsock, Greenberg, everybody. Is we're all just competitive get... nature guys. You know, yep. we're just all trying to. And it was just one of those things, dude. Right place, right time. I didn't do anything that anybody else wouldn't have done, or it wasn't like I, you know, did anything special to get in that position. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and you know, yeah. knew I was. I knew I was engaging somebody that was a threat. Didn't know who it was, though. It was a fucking huge threat. Yeah. Was it the driver of the motorcycle or the passenger? Did you know? The passenger. He was being, come to find out, it was like he was being escorted out of the area. I'll be damned. I think it's safe to say that that op was probably the highlight uh, of that deployment, for me anyways. For me personally, that was like the highlight of that deployment and essentially highlight of my career i mean it's it's when it, when everything comes together the years and years of training and you know dedication that you put forth to what our what our job entails and you have the ability to utilize that uh you know over there that's like doesn't get better than that you know what i mean Hold yeah on. well i mean uh i could definitely see how that would be the highlight fucking yeah. getting rid of number three but um you got rid of another number three yeah, we we went on we that deployment. That was about halfway through that deployment, and and again, it was a very successful deployment. Like we did a lot of shit. Um, we ended up, you know, killing some other H, you know, high high value individuals, um, you know, before we left. Um, so if you, if you gauge your success by that, like we we went there and did what we were required to do or expected to do, I should say, and then packed our bags went home yeah it sounds like you guys were operating at the at the fucking apex of what anybody any operator could dream of and uh that's fucking awesome man yeah absolutely that's a good way to put it for sure for sure it was very uh the satisfaction uh factor was definitely there you're doing everything you put the time in and the blood and the sweat and the tears to do and then and then you go home and how was that so you go home uh this is where shit starts to fall apart (laughs) yeah you know everybody the modern day guys or the guys that are getting out uh more recently they start hearing these stories about the transition and i I think it's probably the most dreaded part of your life that that um that these guys have to look forward to yeah uh, yeah when they get out <clears throat> but yeah the transition uh for me it was extremely challenging um you know when i got back from that deployment you know a couple months had went by and i started noticing that i was experiencing things and you know having just certain scenarios and situations and symptoms i guess you could say I didn't know what the fuck was wrong with me. You know, I didn't know what was going on. You know, I had, I mean, I would have like these fits of rage where I would just go from like zero to a hundred like that, you know? Um, 
severe migraines, headaches. I mean, straight up like debilitating. Felt like you couldn't fucking do anything. Uh, I mean, I remember there was a point where just driving to work, you know, driving to to the battalion in the morning, you know, I'd have to pull off the side of the road and throw up. Couldn't tell you why. Holy shit. Yeah, I couldn't tell you why. Now, I didn't really, all this shit was happening and, uh, you know, the depression set in and, and all that stuff. And I never said anything. It was just kind of like swept under the rug. And uh, it kind of came to a head. Um, I remember I was getting ready to go to a school. I don't remember if it was dive school or what, what it was. I was I was getting ready to go to a school and I needed an updated physical. So I go into BAS, which is our, you know, our doctor's office, if you will. Uh, and I'm like, hey, I need some signatures from the doc. I need a physical. The corpsman there is like, Roger that. Let's go ahead and get your your vitals. Yada yada yada. And uh, so he sits down, takes my temperature. You know, does my blood pressure, and he starts asking me questions. And he's like, uh, he's like, did you run here today? And I was like, uh, no. And he's like, would you drink a pot of coffee? And I'm like, no. What's up with the weird questions? And he's like, well, dude, your fucking blood pressure is like sky high. And I'm like, what is it? And he's like, your blood pressure is 155 over 122. Holy shit. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know if you just hang here for a second. I didn't know this at the time, but he went back to the MO, which was the medical officer at the time, uh, who's a female uh, lieutenant in the Navy, and uh, I won't say her name, but um, he was back there for about five minutes, and he came back up, and he's like, hey, uh, he's like, it's just going to be a few minutes. I'm like, is everything okay? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, I don't know if we're going to be able to get you the signatures or anything right now. He's, and I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Well, I need to leave if that's not going to happen. And he's like, you can't go. And I'm like, what do you mean I can't go? And he's like, the doc specifically told me that you're not allowed to leave. So she pulls me into her office and she's like, yeah, your blood pressure, you're at fucking risk of stroke. Like, your shit's high as fuck. And this had been like 20 minutes had gone by before she had called me back. And during that time, I guess she's going through my medical record with like a fine tooth comb. She didn't know who I was. When we were gone in that deployment is when she came in to the battalion. So she didn't know anything about me. There's this new guy that just got back a couple months ago from this golf company deployment and was trying to go to the next cool guy course, you know. And uh, she sits me down and she's like, has anybody ever gone through your record with you? And I'm like, nope. And uh, she started kind of asking me, you know, questions. Have you ever felt this? Have you, you ever done this? You ever, you know, had this experience? And I'm like, got to the point where I was like, yeah, what are you getting at, you know? And she's like, there's, I think there's a correlation between your high blood pressure and what I'm reading here in your medical record. And uh, that was kind of the come to Jesus meeting that I felt, I think that I really needed well, what uh, what specifically did she read in your medical record that this is related to? I had a total throughout my career. I had been exposed to twelve either you can either IEDs or large blasts. Some of them were RPG blasts. Some of them were when my vehicle was struck by an IED. Uh, some of them were just random IEDs that went off when we were on a foot patrol and I was in close proximity. Uh, so recorded i had 12 
in my medical record. And that doesn't even count all the all the breaching, all the rockets, on all that other. Oh shit. hell no, man! That's not like you know when we're we're training on the range and shooting laws, AT fours, you know, yeah. shit like that, and doing demo packages. No, this is like when incidents happen where I could I potentially lost consciousness or was like I had a time where my eardrums got ruptured because it, you know uh, struck my vehicle. But uh, yeah, so twelve fucking so 12, basically twelve fucking TBIs essentially it had the potential to be that now i didn't i didn't lose conscious consciousness 12 times uh from what i can remember i probably lost conscious like four times maybe five uh but whether or not that categorizes it as a tbi or not i'm not you know i'm not too sure but there was 12 cases 12 instances throughout my career where it was significant enough to be documented in my medical record Fuck, and then and this is from first deployment yeah. that you ever made uh, with the infantry all the way to last one with Marsoc, and this is the first time that yeah anybody any any kind of red flags and uh, it was good because the way she approached it you know we're very fucking hard headed we're very prideful like we're quick to sweep shit like that under the rug and just focus on the mission you know at hand and that's kind of what it was and she was kind of was like look fuck stick like you've got some issues you know and when she kind of put it that way and she she was like you know asked me questions about family i told her about my son and she's like listen she's like your son you care about your son right yeah he's she's like you want to make sure he's taken care of I'm like yeah she's like you can't do any of that unless you take care of you and that kind of resonated with me, you know, really kind of, kind of hit home. And, uh, so she's like, I want you to be honest with me. She's like, go home for the weekend. I want you, I'm going to make an appointment. You're going to come back next week and we're going to do a full physical. And I want you to be honest with me. And so I went home that weekend and just kind of thought about everything. And I was, I was scared to talk to say what I was experiencing because I was on that that high. You know, we had just come off a really successful deployment, and I was getting ready to go to a school that I've been trying to get for a while. And then after I got back from that school, I was going to jump into another workup and deploy again. How long after deployment is this happening? After that last deployment, it was probably two months. Holy fuck! Were you having any symptoms on deployment? Yeah, it actually it, it the symptoms had started even prior to my last deployment, but it was all shit, stuff that dude. I just you know, dude, we don't say shit, you yeah. know what I mean? It's just, yeah. you know, you don't want to do anything that's going to remove you from your team, you know? Yeah. Uh stubborn in a sense, but So yeah, that happened, went back the next week and I did I spilled I spilled my guts, man. I told her everything that I was experiencing. I told her I don't know what the fuck's going on with me, and I've been super depressed. Uh, so long story short, she wanted to enroll me in the Spirit Intrepid Center on Camp Lejeune, which was our brain treatment facility. It's a 20-week inpatient or outpatient program uh, where they do everything from like vestibular rehab to cognitive therapy, uh, physical therapy, occupational speech therapy, uh, all that stuff. And and you're you're basically going there and you're receiving treatment every day for for 20 weeks that's that's your sole purpose and she thought that i needed to 
to go into that program because of everything that was going on. And so they could kind of dig a little deeper and see what was going on. And that's when, that's when I found out about the TBI and they had done MRIs in my brain and shit. And, you know, it was just like, okay. So when you went home for that weekend, nobody wants to be, I guess I shouldn't say nobody. Most guys don't want to be diagnosed with anything because they don't want to be separated from the team or miss a deployment or any of that shit. But on the other hand, at least for for me, I didn't want... I was also, at the same time, scared to... I didn't want to hear what the fuck was wrong with me. And I know a lot of other guys have that. They have that... Did you have any of that? That fear that... Because once you get it, it's, oh, it's that's, fucking real. Yeah, dude, I was scared. You know, and... and I look back on it now and think how foolish I was, but I, I used to be that guy that was like, what the fuck is PTSD? Yeah. Well, that, that shit's for the weak. Yeah. That means you fucking have a weak mind. That's how I used to look at it because I was just, didn't know, I was uneducated, thought I was fucking, you know, bulletproof. That age, that, that's how you feel. You feel like you're unstoppable, you yeah. know, and that's kind of where I was. And it was a humbling moment when I realized like, this is me like I'm human and the accumulation of all these deployments and all this shit like being at a high stress level in that fight or flight mode for years um, you know I was that was me now you know I, these are the effects all this these things that I was feeling and experiencing and everything it was a result of all that time that I had spent doing that that cool guy shit you know so everybody's like you know not everybody but i'll get a lot of people like dude holy fuck you like the things that you did is fucking amazing like i would i would kill to fucking be able to do some of the things that you did and while i'm grateful i'm i'm kind of like it fucking it came with a price yeah it came with a real hefty price you know have you heard of uh have you heard of operator syndrome Mm-mm. they're now saying that um i'm gonna fuck this up but they're now basically what they're doing is PTSD became so broad uh, that now that they're starting to or have started to diagnose operators like yourself with operator syndrome because of all the other fucking symptoms that are coming out, you know, like your PTSD is different than the admin person who had a random rocket land next to their fucking bunkhouse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, um, and I believe there's uh, seven, I can't remember exactly what they are, but I believe there's like seven different um, kind of symptoms that they did uh, make up operator syndrome, which is all, you know, from right, right. that stress. And, huh, that's interesting. And I can totally see that. I remember one of the things when I was at that brain treatment clinic was, uh, they asked me if I would be interested in doing group therapy. And uh, I promised myself that when I went there that I would go in with an open mind and I would try my best to take advantage of every resource that was available. So I tried it and uh, you know, the first one I went to was the only one I went to, um, but it was like 15 people in a room, all either Marines or Navy corpsmen and everybody had their own experience. But the thing was, some of them were combat related and some of them weren't. Like a guy was, you know, you had a 
E2 or E3 sit next to me who had been in a car wreck and was suffering from TBI and PTSD, which I, you know, don't take anything away from his accident and his injuries, but it's totally different, you know. So it just was hard for me. It wasn't relatable, you know. Yeah. It was hard for me to be in that setting. I, I felt like if I was going to do counseling or therapy, it probably needed to be better. Probably needed to be alone. You know, I didn't do well with group therapies. But anyhow, so I was there, did the 20-week program. And uh, during that time, it really opened my eyes. Seeing where I was at with my baseline, with all the different tests and shit, it revealed that I had issues. Yeah. And... I guess as I was being, uh, as I was realizing, coming to the realization that I had issues, it was really, that snowball effect was really taking place. My issues were getting worse and worse and worse. And at one point, man, I just got, I, I was in a really deep, dark place in my life. That was right before I got out of the Marine Corps. Um, I had basically been given a choice. Um, I, I, t- I was told I was never going to deploy again, that I had a choice to either do a lateral move to a non-deployable MOS, essentially in an admin job, or I would be medically retired, that I, w- I had to choose between the two. And uh, that kind of fucked me up because I wasn't ready to, to drop my pack. I wasn't. It was very difficult to come to grips with the fact that it was it was over. Yeah. How did they? Um, how did they tell you you're not depl- you're not going to deploy again? They told me I couldn't afford another concussion. I, okay. They're like, you're going to turn into a fucking vegetable. Like you cannot afford another concussion. If you deploy again in the teams, there's a very high chance you will get another concussion, and you can't. Like we don't want to risk severe brain damage at that point. You know, not saying that that's what's going to happen, but you know, they're airing on the side of caution you know at that point yeah so that was tough uh, there was a time dude where like there wasn't a day that went by where i didn't contemplate suicide and think it out like how i was going to do it how were you going to do it i had a, an array of different ways i was going to do it were you drinking yeah drinking how you know i had gotten divorced i had a failed marriage I was living in a three-bedroom house all by myself, so I'd go home and it had nobody. Yeah, you know, and it was just lonely, and I was trying to battle all these demons on my own, not really knowing what what the fuck to do. You know. Yeah, and I was kind of, I'm kind of, I was resentful of the guys that I had served with, the guys in my team, because the thing I've learned about not just the Marine Corps, but, you know, all branches, regardless of what what you're doing is when you get out, that train doesn't stop rolling. Yeah. That, that train keeps going and it doesn't look back. It doesn't slow down. If you get off, thanks. Have a good time. It does exactly what the fuck it is supposed to do, whether you are there or not. Yeah. And that's a fucking tough pill to swallow. I didn't get any calls. Nobody checked to see how I was doing. I don't think anybody really knew. I was so, like, isolated. I just isolated myself. And, uh, dude, I don't, I don't even know how the fuck I pulled myself out of that hole, to be honest with you, man. It was bad. 
it was real bad um just and for like a solid year and a half i was not myself like i i did some shit that i look back on now that i'm just like fuck the fuck is wrong with you you know what i mean just like give us an example failed relationships you know with people different you know just just the way i would act you know like i just didn't give a fuck about anything or anybody you know yeah i think i know where you're going with this but um i'm curious did you look to your i mean your stepdad was a sniper in vietnam and uh who had come home and he's still alive so did you look to him for any type of guidance or did you no i didn't man and that's no i didn't man i i was i was partially you know embarrassed about it i didn't i didn't really know how to feel but i didn't have like a mentor or somebody that i could talk to or somebody could be like yeah dude this is normal it wasn't like that i just and honestly had i it was probably best that i experienced it by myself um because i learned from it i learned a lot and ultimately man i think i think my son is is probably what kept my head above water because i i came very close uh on, on a couple different occasions to uh you know taking my own life and my thinking about my son and him growing up without a father is what stopped me so fast forward you know i uh i get put on a med board i'm found unfit for duty i'm given a date to get out of the marine corps i'm done i'm being medically retired what year uh what year is this this is the end of 2014 and i feel like the fucking walls are closing in around me because i have no fucking idea what i'm gonna do how does what i just did for the last 11 years of my life gonna translate to the corporate world or the civilian sector yeah i don't want to be a fucking cop i see what those motherfuckers deal with and quite frankly i just don't want to do it yeah i was done carrying a fucking gun had not didn't want anything to do with it for like a year and a half after i got out i never even picked up a gun didn't carry didn't have any fucking sold all my shit dude sold all my guns where did you did you where'd you go uh i moved back down to florida that's where you know where i grew up and my dad lived there and you know, I went, I went and moved in with my dad temporarily for a few months. He was, you know, he's been the most impactful person in my life. And he was the one I felt like I need to go be with him for a little while and just kind of try to clear my head, but, and, and figure out what the fuck I was going to do with my life. What's next? What yeah. am I going to do for a living? You know, I can't like, I, so I, I just, I don't know what to do. You know, I was kind of lost in life and, uh, you know, so that during that time, you know, when I moved, moved back down to Florida, you know, I, I tried a few, I, I dabbled in a few different things. I tried the school thing, you know, GI Bill, that, that fucking worked out like a fart in church. Yeah. Um, 
How how long did you try that? I'm just curious. Uh semester and a half. That's a you gave it a good go. Yeah, I gave it a good go. But it just wasn't for me, dude. Like it just I tried it. I thought that was like the thing to do. Yeah, well, coming back from four fucking combat deployments, being blown up twelve times, killing the fucking number three guy. Uh, SWAT Marines that are pussies out of the way so you can jump on the machine gun and then go into a fucking classroom with a bunch of 18-year-old fucking chumps. Um, that had to be a uh, tough pill to swallow. Yeah, dude. Hey, you want to talk about feeling like an insignificant piece of shit? I was just trying to figure out, like, what the fuck happened? A year and a half ago, I was fucking, like, on top of the world. Yeah. You know? I was on top of the fucking world. Um, and it was tough, man. So I did that. It didn't work out for me. Then I thought, all right, so maybe I want to do a trade school. Maybe I want to go be a Marine marine technician, go learn how to work on outboard motors and stuff like that. Uh, you know, got everything, was doing my vocational rehab, you know, packet, going to that. I went the first day and I was like, nope, this isn't going to be good. Why is that? I could just tell there was, you know, certain guys. There was younger guys in the class. Um, and then the, between that, certain guys in the class that I knew I wasn't going to mesh well with. And then I, there was a personality conflict with uh, with the instructor himself. And uh, I was just like, yeah, I don't I don't want to do this bad enough yeah. to you know, to stick this out for, I think the, the course for that was like almost a year. And, uh, were you getting a lot of anxiety and shit being around oh, people? Bro, bro, it's fucking unreal. And, and when I talk about like personality conflicts and not meshing well with some of those other students and stuff, I think a lot of that was me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it was just me. Like I had no idea how to fucking deal with being like a member of like, civilization regular society you know what i mean like you know somebody would be fucking tapping their pen on the desk while somebody's talking and you're trying to concentrate and i want to fucking slam their face on the desk you know <laughs> yeah no i uh i think uh that's a big reason why people are always asking uh we get a ton of emails and then uh one of the a really common question is why do guys that come from special operations community or, or war fighters why do they always self-isolate why do they wind up in the middle of nowhere and um i think we're all just trying to avoid confrontation because we cannot deal with it um the way we used to dude the first day i moved back down to florida i broke a guy's jaw I don't like we're at a storage unit I was getting my stuff I won't go into too too far into detail about the story but the guy deserved an ass whooping and I gave it to him but uh you know hours after that deputy shows up to the house you know luckily I didn't get in trouble because the officer felt that the, my actions were warranted um but that kind of was like, okay, I can't fucking do this kind of stuff anymore. Like, I'm going to end up in jail. Yeah. You know, I can't can't react the way that I normally would react. Um, so. 
How many relationships, well, let me rephrase this. What relationships did you not ruin? Because a lot of guys ruin all the relationships with family, wives, girlfriends, friends. Dude, I, I think it's safe to say that I probably fucking ruined all of them. Even At with some your point dad? in time. Yeah. Dad. Later down the road, my dad and I kind of had a falling out. Um, since then, we've rekindled that. You know, him and I are real close. But, yeah. So you said you pretty much fucked up just about all of your relationships, even with your your dad. But you came down here and you're newly married, just like me. So obviously you had at least one that worked out and was able to put up with your fucking bullshit. That, hey, I think that's what it boils down to is when you end up meeting your soulmate, it's that one person that's willing to put up with your shit. Yeah. Uh, I met Jillian about four years ago. Uh, we got married in October last year and she was my saving grace, dude. That, I mean, when I found, re, you know, refound my love for fishing and taking the guys out, that made me feel accomplished, but she was that missing piece to my puzzle she ground, you know, keeps me grounded, um, brings me back down when I'm, you know, out in left field, uh, and ultimately she's the one that pushed me to pursue my my goals, my dreams, my aspirations. Um, so I got her locked down now. <laughs> well, that's fucking awesome, man. Yeah, man, we're we're really happy, and we're both in a really good place, and uh, I'm very I'm a very lucky guy. Yeah, you guys are good together. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. A lot of people want to know how they can help somebody with PTSD or post-traumatic stress, TBI, uh, with the with the transition. And um, <clears throat> I can tell you what definitely does not fucking work is when people try to relate to what you're dealing with who's never who have never fucking been there. Yeah, and but. So don't do that. <laughs> but do you have any advice for people who who do want to help anything? I mean, if you want to help, just be a good fucking American. Don't let guys that have done so much and sacrificed so much for the country feel like everything they did was for a fucking waste. Yeah. You know, do getting on social media and posting videos of yourself doing fucking 22 push-ups you're not fucking making a difference. You're not doing shit. Yeah. You're not raising awareness like you think you are and whoever fucking started that might might have thought it was, but you're not. Okay, so just be a good fucking person, you know? Be a good person and if you by chance do come across a combat veteran, just fucking say what's up. You know, don't, don't sit there and, and try to ask them how many fucking people they've killed or don't do that shit. Just, you know. Just ask him what's going on, you know, talk to him, introduce yourself. I had a guy, I remember one time when I was, I went to another brain treatment facility uh, in Dallas, Texas. I was working out at the gym there that was right right across from the, uh, the facility there. And a random dude just came up to me and he's like, sir, I don't want to interrupt your workout, but uh, he's like, I, I recognize you. you were, your picture's on, on OAF page. And uh, I'm like, that's pretty fucking... Or not being a trained observer, that's pretty fucking good. Uh, 
but the kid didn't have any expectations he wasn't like you know trying to fucking find out you know info about like what i did and just you know hey can i get a picture with you he genuinely was just like dude i want to say i got a ton of fucking respect for you and uh i don't i don't have any clue what what you may have experienced but uh you know i just want to tell you thank you you know that's fucking and i thought cool. that was pretty cool you know yeah but um yeah so you know fast forward probably a year from there you know i was still trying to figure out what the fuck i was going to do in life and uh i get a phone call one day from a guy by the name of ed salu and uh he goes hey dude you want to go fishing and i'm like uh, you know i always want to go fishing dude so he's like uh he's like well here's the deal man he's like do you want to go down to costa rica and go bill fishing on a private yacht sport fishing yacht and uh just hang out and relax for like a week and i'm like yeah what's like what i gotta do like where do i sign up or you know what i'm like what's the catch and so long story short he's like look man i got there's this organization called freedom alliance they do a hero what they call the heroes vacation every year and they basically select 15 guys to go down to costa rica and go down for a week and basically go bill fishing you know for marlin and, and sailfish and stuff you know once in a lifetime opportunity and it's funny because in between missions on my last deployment i remember we had a little internet center and i remember going in there and getting on the internet and researching about like different charters and stuff because i told myself when i get home like that is my number one on my bucket list i want to go down and catch a trophy billfish and the opportunity was presented myself uh, i got to go down there and it was a life life-altering experience no shit yeah i grew up fishing down in florida freshwater fishing saltwater fishing like i i grew up doing that but during my time in the military, I basically didn't do any of that. Like I didn't fish at all. So get you know when I got home, I kind of rediscovered my love for fishing again. And when I went on that trip, it was just like it was life changing, dude. It really was. It was it was a life changing moment in my life. And I just kind of you know a, a few times during that trip, I kind of sat back and just observed to see what it was doing, the impact it was having on the other guys that were invited to go on this trip and I'm like and the fucking light bulb came on and I'm like I'm like I could fucking make a difference I, I can fucking do this I have the experience and the resources and the gear to fucking be able to get more guys out on the water and let them experience this and uh, so that's what I did you know I, I talked to the director uh, director of Freedom Alliance talked to the president of Freedom Alliance I said listen I said um, I love everything that you guys are about everything that you're doing and I want to be a part of it I want to volunteer I don't want any money I don't want anything I just want to be able to contribute and I would love to start doing more than the one time a year where the guys would go down to Costa Rica so um, I started running I started taking combat wounded veterans on offshore fishing trips to the Bahamas and uh, it was amazing dude the impact was having on these guys it was just like unbelievable and for me that was like the biggest thing because for that like year after i had just gotten out the biggest thing i struggled with was trying to find my purpose in life again yeah you know <clears throat> feeling like i was just a total piece of shit and wasn't doing anything i needed to find that sense of purpose again like i was 
And I felt like I was contributing to the mission just in a different aspect that I was prior to that. So it was really cool to do that. And that led in, you know, doing those trips and, and realizing how much of a of difference it was making and how much of an impact it was having on these guys. I took it to the next level. I used my GI Bill to go to captain school. Uh, so I went to a 13-week uh, captain's course, uh, ended up graduating as honor grad, uh, from that course, got my U.S. Coast Guard captain's license, and um, now I've kind of found my new calling. I, I'm a full-time fishing guide. Uh, I started a business, Warrior to Bass Guide Service. I'm a full-time uh, freshwater uh, fishing guide. I, you know, targeting mainly largemouth bass. Uh, so it's what I do to put food on the table for my family. Now I really enjoy it. I get to meet people from all different walks of life and provide them with lifelong memories uh, with their family members and friends and stuff, get out on the water. Uh, but my my biggest uh, enjoyment is I still do the volunteer work. I still take veterans. So in between all my work, I have blackout dates where I will schedule to fly veterans in to fish for two days so that they can experience that. Well, I remember, I think when we met, uh, you were still working with Freedom Alliance yeah. and uh, we had just started teaching together and you invited me to go on that trip um, in uh, Baton Rouge, right? Venice. We were in Venice. Yeah, Venice, Venice. Louisiana. Yeah. yeah, on that tuna fishing excursion. and uh, <laughs> Yeah, which was fucking awesome. And I, I really, uh, I really trusted you. Um, I didn't, before that, I didn't do any of that I know because I, I just I've seen so many fucking nonprofits, you know, use the veteran card in 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 the treatment card to fucking and they abused their it. Pockets. Yeah, they abused it. I know exactly <clears throat> what you mean. But uh, I, you invited me, and I was like, "Well, fuck." I mean, I I had a lot of respect for you, and I trusted you, and we went and. Uh, it was it was a really good fucking experience and um and uh it wasn't it's therapy but it's not it's just nice to get your fucking mind off of shit and uh be around some like-minded people yeah uh which is another uh reason i was actually a little hesitant to go is because you know with what we used to do there's egos fucking run rampant and sometimes that can be pretty toxic but but that was a really good trip and uh all the guys that were there whether there was four of us and it was other than the fucking cold <laughs> uh that was awesome but um yeah no egos flying around i remember telling my my wife like i was actually kind of shocked that you said yes like i really i knew your kind of your outlook on you know some of the different benevolent organizations and and how they abused it and, and didn't do the right thing and i was shocked that you came but i was happy that you did i mean that's what it's all about man you get out there there wasn't you know like i said no egos running around and even though it's not a therapy session just by nature of what the trip is it ends up being kind of that way it ends up everybody gets something out of it whether it's just you know talking to a guy that may have similar experiences that you do and in the end you feel like you're not alone because that dude knows exactly how the fuck you feel 
like that's a big deal yeah well the way you structured it too you had guys that were fresh out you had guys that were had been out for a little while Mm -hmm. and then like i had been out for a little while and i think that was i think that was really good because the guys that are fresh out that's it fucking seems hopeless and then you see a guy who's been out who's coming around and it gives you uh it it just makes you realize you know fuck it's i can overcome this shit it's possible yeah you know that guy's doing great gives you hope yep gives you hope i mean you've done it i've done it i I mean how many guys have we helped kind of walk through the transition and and multiple different facets you know i've had guys reach out to me and they're like look man what do you what what do you think about this you know what should i do you know guys that just don't know and kind of looking for direction you know guidance and i feel like i fucking learned it all on my own like i i went struggled through the the transition and ultimately i i feel like i've had a successful transition but if i can help anybody from going through what i fucking went through yeah like i, I want to help them you know it's almost like For the young Marsoc guys that are coming out now, or maybe they're not even young, you know, that shit could be fucking 40 years old, but to see a guy like you who's been there and done it and admit that you've gotten help, it it makes it okay, you know, for the next, for the generations that are coming out. And uh, I do have a question, though. Do you make, do you make uh, everybody who catches fucking tuna eat the heart out yes that's tradition so <laughs> two things that typically happen when you catch your first tuna you got to get in the water with it uh which we didn't make you do that but what we did make you do is you got to eat the heart not the whole thing but you at least got to take a bite so uh <laughs> So for those of you guys that have or have not fished aboard uh, any of Captain Mike Ellis's boats with uh, Relentless Sport Fishing, there's kind of a tradition uh, that, that's kind of adhered to. And uh, anytime you catch your, your first yellowfin tuna, um, that is, you will taste the blood of that tuna. So uh, eat your heart out, Sean. I'd spit it out and give you worms. <laughs> Freedom Alliance, <laughs> relentless sport fishing. Good stuff, guys. Good job, Good job man. Congrats. Thank you. That's just a tradition, man. That's that's uh, come from years back, and it's just fun, you know. And and I feel like anybody in the normal state of mind would look at you and be like, "Yeah, that's not fucking happening." But with with guys like us, it's kind of like you gotta fucking do it, you know. Yeah, well, you made me do it. I was going to finish it, but then you told me <laughs> I'm going to get fucking worms. So, but, um, so you do that, you're able to do that now with, with your charters. What's that? The take veterans out. And that's probably, that is probably even better because it's a one on one experience. We had, you know, we had a captain and three other guys. Yeah. And then, but now you're the fucking captain yeah. and you're the combat vet that guys, you know, can yeah. look up to. And it's a one-on-one 
It is yeah. a one-on-one session. Yeah. Typically, the way I'll do it is I'll, I'll invite two guys. So it'll typically be two guys and myself. Okay. Um, but you know, I just want to emphasize that this is not a for-profit. These guys are not being charged when they come when they're invited. You know, I I select these guys and, and nominate them to come down for these trips um, based on people, not just random like oh uh, you got you and you. These are people that I feel can benefit from it, that need it. You they verify. need that reset button. What's that? You verify. Oh, absolutely. Everybody that I've taken, I know. I either know or have somebody that's very close to me that knows them. Um, and this is to ensure that everybody that gets the opportunity to go on these is actually uh, deserving of it. But yeah, it's you know basically myself and two other guys and, and you know we go out and just relax and decompress and have a good time and you know we catch fish which is always a plus but uh at the end of the day it's that breaking away from the everyday stressors of life and and the bullshit and all that stuff and letting them kind of reconnect with you know old comrades or you know just like you said like-minded individuals who might may have experienced similar things or similar struggles you know and getting them out in the water together and you know and next you know you got two guys that may have not known each other prior to that, or they may have known of each other but never really met, who are now lifelong friends. They yeah. made that connection, you know? Building a network, Absolutely. which is fucking huge. Absolutely. When you get out. Well, <clears throat> I think that's, that's fucking awesome what you're doing. And so who's covering the cost of taking these guys out? Well, I am um, basically, you know, I'll just, I'll put money aside, you know, when I can on my busier, busier days, uh, busier times a year, you know, I'll set some money aside and, uh, you know, I'll eat the cost, you know, they're not, they're not paying me for, you know, to take them out. Like it's just my boat, my gear, my time, uh, the money that I do put forth is to cover things like airfare, lodging, food, all that stuff. Um, so right now it's me. So we, we kind of talked about this before he came up and I mean, I just think it's fucking great that you're paying for, to help and give back to the community. But I mean, in my opinion, you shouldn't be the one paying to give back to the community. So we spoke a lot about and talked a lot about business, uh, before we finally sat down and, and got you on the show. And so you can donate to Nick on Venmo and PayPal, and anything that gets donated goes to the it next could, the next set of veterans that yeah, you're going to help to a therapeutic fishing retreat. And you know we get we get questions all the time at Vigilance Elite on how can I help the veterans? How can I help the veterans? How can I help the guys coming back home? What can I do to give back to them? Well, now's your chance. Nick's doing the dirty work. Not dirty work, but, you know, Nick's doing the good work. And he's a great role model for the guys coming home. And he's got a lot of good advice. And the more money you donate to, what's your handle? So you can find me at uh, Warrior to Bass Guide Service. Um, it's spell out the name Warrior the number two and then bass uh you can find me on instagram you can find me on facebook 
or you can go to my website, warriorbass.com. So all those proceeds get veterans out there, and uh, you got to find an example of somebody who's uh, had a successful transition. So check out Warrior Two Bass. Although I think it should be Warrior Three Bass, but <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, so I want to kind of wrap this thing up here, Nick. I just want to say it's been a real fucking honor to have you sitting in that chair across from me. And, um, you know, your fucking service record is amazing. I've worked with a lot of different operators from all different branches, especially when I was at CIA. I worked with all of them. And uh, I got to tell you, if I could go back and operate with somebody um, that I didn't get to before, you would be fucking top of my list, dude. And I don't say that shit to very many people. But um, you're just a solid motherfucker, dude. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. I feel it's mutual. I knew that from the time when we started teaching together, you know, doing the, the training and whatnot. I always thought to myself, man, we could have fucking wrecked some shit if we were deployed together. <laughs> you're damn right. All right, check out Warrior 2 Bass on Instagram, and um, best of luck to you, man. Thanks, brother. I appreciate you having me on the show. It's been an honor. Cheers. Finding suitable mental health medications can be a challenge. The GeneSight test may help. Did you know that genetics can play an important role in gaining insight on how a person may respond to various medications? Understanding this may help reduce medication trial and error. GeneSight is a genetic test that analyzes variations in DNA. It shows how genes may affect someone's metabolism or response to medications commonly prescribed to treat depression, anxiety, and other mental health conditions. Visit GeneSight.com for more information. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.